Hello and welcome. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to the monitor room at the Christian Geek Central podcast, a biblical examination and celebration of geekery and geek entertainment, as well as the official podcast of ChristianGeekCentral.com. I'm Peter Franson from Spirit Blade Productions, producing entertainment and resources to hopefully equip, encourage, and inspire Christian geeks like you and me to live in the freedom and purpose that Christ has given us. For more information about Spirit Blade Productions, you can check out spiritblade.com or patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions. On the show today, it's March Movie Madness. I'm going to share reviews for the movies Freaks, Mandy, Mythica, A Quest for Heroes, Batman 1989, with some help from uh, my 12-year-old who saw it for the first time with me, and the new movie, Bloodshot. Plus, I'm going to talk about my big week, surprising big week, of fantasy board gaming. Had no idea I was going to spend that much time in that hobby. Um, and then also, part of that involved my search for uh, possibly a new board game dungeon crawler. So I'll talk about that a little bit later. Check the timestamps for more details. Here we go! Well, thank you all for joining me on this historic day. The serum I've created will give anyone who drinks it the power to objectively know the difference between something that is cool and something that is lame and is completely safe. Allow me to demonstrate. Freaks from 2018, not to be confused with Freaks from 2019, or Freaks from 19, I can't remember how old that movie is. There are at least three different movies, probably more, that use the word Freaks as the main word in the title, or as the sole word in the title. Uh, so this could be easily confused, or just forgotten about because of its very forgettable title. But I'm going to tell you, this is not a forgettable movie, at least not for me. Uh, the synopsis on IMDb... Uh, which I, I'm not going to say anything more about the plot, I think, other than the synopsis, because the, the beauty of this experience for me was not knowing what was going to happen. And so I want to preserve that for you as well. The synopsis on IMDb reads, A bold girl discovers a bizarre, threatening, and mysterious new world beyond her front door after she escapes her father's protective and paranoid control. <laughs> and with that simple premise... uh starts a movie that eventually opens up into some sci-fi concepts um, with some characters that have superpowers and stuff that goes in directions I just, I didn't expect. Very rarely did I expect, you know, or suspect what was going to happen next. I, I love that the trailer told me almost nothing of what I would experience. I kind of thought this was going to be, I'm not going to say what I kind of thought it was going to be. Um, but anyway, I, I 
I want to preserve that mystery for you too. So anyway, um, I'll just try to describe what kind of experience that you're in for. This is, I think, a sci-fi suspense mystery drama with characters possessing superpowers. Um, the big questions at the start of the movie are, why is this man hiding with his daughter in a house in the middle of the suburbs? Who can be trusted? Uh, can the dad be trusted? Can the neighbors be trusted? Can the strange old ice cream truck driver be trusted? Can the authorities be trusted? Who can be trusted and who cannot? Uh, and that's a question that hangs on for a good while in this movie. It's a suspenseful movie because the, the little girl, which is kind of the central character of the story, is very vulnerable, in a very vulnerable situation. And uh, despite increasingly opening up with a bunch of big sci-fi concepts as the movie progresses, it has very relatable family drama and characters with motives that are very relatable uh, in a family context, uh, with power concepts even that are tied to relatable traits um, among people. Uh, I won't say anything more than that. Um, man, it's a movie that just kind of puts you in the moment-by-moment -moment experiences of the characters without giving exposition to help you out until much later. You know, when I first, in the first 15 minutes, I was like, is this going to be one of those movies that, like, doesn't make sense, I feel lost, and I never feel like I know what's going on, even at the end of the movie? No, it is not. Um, it becomes much more clear by the halfway point and increasingly clear after that. As the movie opens up, as it introduces more of these sci-fi types of concepts, what is going on in the world and who the characters are... Uh, and what the state of the world is all becomes more and more clear until the very end. It's a very clear and understandable story, you know. But it starts out with so much obscured about what's going on, what is true of this world, you know. Uh, and I found that really enjoyable to just kind of like figure out as I was watching the movie. Um, and they do give you help later on in the movie, but I mean, by that point, you've probably figured out at least half of the, what they then reveal to you, you know. So I, I felt like even when they were revealing stuff to me about the state of the world and the characters and stuff, um, some of it was like, okay, I figured that out. But then some of it was like, oh, really? Oh, you know. So uh, I, I never felt spoon-fed and I never felt lost in a way that was uh, getting in the way of my enjoyment of the story and my connection to the characters when it was important for me to connect to them personally. You know, anyway. <laughs> um, and by the end, it all makes sense. It ends in a way that I found satisfying, yet also challenging, unsettling. Like, oh, I'm not sure how I feel about this, you know. And I just love when a movie can do that for me. I, I again, have to criticize the title. Freaks is such a generic-sounding, forgettable title. It's one of the reasons that even though I knew about this movie back in December and was thinking, can I cram this in maybe while I'm on Christmas vacation, you know, it just kind of went off my radar because the, the name and what little the trailer revealed just made me think this was like a, a movie that I could pass on. It's not anything special, you know. Um, and uh, I couldn't have been more wrong. Uh, this is a, this is going to be a real special part of my collection. I'm get, letting the cat out of the bag already. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, a forgettable title for what was for me a very unique and unforgettable movie. Let's talk about the cast. I'll just say across the board, great performances. Um, what is what is his name? Like Eli Hirschman? Eli? What's this dude's name? Let me. I, Emil Hirsch. Uh, who you might know from Speed Racer, I mean, which I never saw, but I, I looked at this guy, I was like, oh, 
he used to be younger and do things when he was younger. Who? What, what did he do when he was younger? And so he was a face I haven't seen in a while, but he was a familiar face to me. Anyway, um, he does a great job, and but I really have to highlight the the child actress. His name, her name is Alexi Kolker, and I just really, you know, um, it's easy for me to just be disconnected to child actor performances, just because they generally are weaker than the adult performances. They seem much more artificial, much less realistic. And a lot of that happens as a result of them being asked by the script and the director to emote and to portray subtlety and layers of emotion, subtext, uh, that they're just not capable of because they're just not experienced enough or talented enough or whatever the case may be. I mean, really, experience is, is usually the, the the main thing there. They're just not experienced enough to know how to pull those emotions from inside of themselves and to bring them to the forefront so that they can, you know, realistically and authentically portray a particular emotion. And uh, anyway, I really believed that this kid was a real kid in these extraordinary circumstances, even given the intense emotion that she was required to realistically express. I never felt like this is a kid that someone just said action to, and she is now, you know, doing like he's, she's pretending to have certain emotions. You know, I felt like, you know, she seemed very authentic to me, and I really, really appreciate that. That can go so south for me when you hang a movie on a child actor's performance. And this movie certainly does hang on her performance, but um, she was great as far as I'm concerned. Uh, The visuals. Okay, so this is like an indie movie, um, presumably a very small budget. And uh, like less, maybe less than a million. I'm not sure. It's uh, it only grossed in the hundreds of thousands. I mean, it's a very, very small uh, movie. I think. I mean, hopefully it is. The, looking at it, I just sense that it was a pretty small budget. Visual effects are sparse, uh, especially in the first half. They also, when they do show up, you know. Show the budget of the movie a little bit. They look a little bit cheap, but are used sparingly and sometimes shown fleetingly in ways that really hide their weakness as well. You know, they just show up to do what they need to do and then they get out of the way. And uh, uh, most often, practical lighting and other, you know, on set uh, ideas are used to portray the use of. paranormal things and you know the 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 involvement of paranormal things and uh and various sci-fi concepts and stuff um and not in a way that feels cheap it's kind of like a hide the monster technique where in a horror movie you know you're going to hide that monster and you maybe progressively reveal it over time and then there's one big shot at the end where you see it in all of its full horror and splendor you know and it's a similar kind of uh vibe for this movie they really go subtle and uh, with with the visual effects and sparingly with the visual effects, and they ramp up more toward the end. Um, and even at the end, they they cut some corners, they do some things so that those powers can be portrayed. They'll see like characters reacting to powers, you know, uh, in effect. And that might sound cheap when I say, "Oh man, right at the big moment where we want to see what's going on, we're just seeing a reaction shot." Um, the way it's played, the way it's shot. It uh, it makes sense. It's not like we're cutting away and they're denying us seeing that. They it's like there's a sense of suspense, like in a horror movie where you're like, oh my gosh, what does the monster look like? And your imagination uh, is is fueled by the tension of the moment, and you start imagining kind of what's going on. You know, it's kind of like in uh, in uh, Batman Begins 
when you didn't see Batman like swinging all over the place, you know, doing crazy acrobatic stuff. You just saw guys getting yanked off screen and you knew it was Batman doing that. And you just imagined what he would have to do to be darting around like that. And you're just like, oh, my gosh. And Batman is super cool in that moment. It's a it's a similar type of uh, technique that's employed here to uh, portray some really, you know, what would in other movies be big budget effects moments uh, in a way that it doesn't require big budget effects, but still works, still has that sense of, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening, you know? So I really didn't feel like the movie suffered for what they didn't show me. In fact, in some ways, I think it was enhanced, and it certainly is better than it would have been if they would have, with the budget and the effects resources they had, try to show in full lighting, all those kinds of big, you know, uh, effects type of moments. Um, the, the movie and its events are contained on just a very, uh, a few different sets, but in a way that's appropriate to the movie. It didn't feel artificially limited. It felt very appropriately limited. You know, I mean, like the main premise of the movie is, uh, this girl, uh, with her father holed up in a house and the whole movie doesn't take place in the house by any means. There's, there's like, at least, I want to say, three other locations that uh, that they go to, you know. But a lot of it is in that house, and, and uh, yeah, that makes sense for the story. So it doesn't feel um, unnecessarily stifling. Um, and there are still events that are happening on a massive scale. This, this movie is about the, this whole world and what is true of this world that is very different from the world we live in, you know. And... Uh, and they just do some clever things to give you a sense of the massive scale of the events of this movie, despite limiting what you see to just a few different sets and a handful of characters. So I'm really, really well done. Um, let's see here. Uh, let's talk about the themes just a little bit. Uh, I thought often while I was watching this movie about my parenting and how I try to protect my boys from the world and how some of that is good. But my execution can sometimes neglect communication with them or neglect truly taking time to listen to them and to how they feel, creating conflict and the impression that I don't care about their concerns, you know. Um, so th this movie, I think, really will bring to mind those kinds of things for parents um, as they're struggling to figure out how to teach their kids, uh, how to get their kids at a young age to follow certain rules that will keep them safe. And even though the kids don't understand why these rules are necessary, you know, um, so all those kinds of things are, are put on uh, this weird sci-fi stage. <laughs> in this movie. Um, thematically, I think it's a movie about the intensity with which parents love and protect their kids, the problems that the parents' own flaws bring to their parenting and to those relationships, and how that combination leads to conflict, leads to distrust, uh, that is frankly sometimes deserved, you know. So uh, some really uh, worthwhile stuff that I was drawn to thinking about during and after watching this movie. Now, I have no idea what your tastes are in movies, but if I were a time traveler, you can guess what I would say. I'd go back in time and say, Peter, buy it. Buy it. Don't watch another trailer. Don't watch the trailer again. Just buy it. It's that kind of awesome movie with big sci-fi concepts and equal amounts of intense drama uh, with characters that you care about. And on top of that, it's a movie whose direction you can't guess at almost any given moment uh, and leaves you feeling challenged at the end uh, of the movie, you know, to parse through the morality of the flawed but relatable protagonists. Um, 
very special movie buy it right now uh which you can <laughs> since it's been out for a little while now you can get my spoiler filled reactions to freaks 2018 uh today in my spoiler car video series just one of many perks available for your support over at patreon.com slash productions this one's rated r by the mpaa for violence and some language I want to remind you guys to check out the other members of the Christian Geek Central Network, such as the Strangers and Aliens podcast, the Theology Gaming podcast, the Untold podcast. Yeah, I'll take a breath this time. POS, TOS, Helix Reviews, and the Retro Rewind podcast. For more information about the CGC Network, visit ChristianGeekCentral.com. Okay, kiddo, pop quiz time. Best movie franchise. The Terminator. Mm, not even close. The Matrix. Best TV show. Star Trek. Star... What? Farscape. You have to know that it's Farscape. Uh, it's like you're not even my son. Unless... You're not my son. I don't like your voice. It irritates me. Hey, hey wait. Let's make another call. No, please. And another, and another, and another. You are very messy. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Mandy. Made in 2018, starring Nicolas Cage, the synopsis on IMDb reads, The enchanted lives of a couple in a secluded forest are brutally shattered by a nightmare hippie cult and their demon biker henchmen propelling a man into a spiraling, surreal rampage of vengeance! Man, that sounds a lot more exciting than this movie was. The Enchanted Lives... Well, that part sounds right. It's certainly... They seem to be enchanted. (laughs) Enchanted Lives of a Couple in a Secluded Forest are brutally shattered. That sounds much more impactful than it felt. By a nightmarish hippie cult and their demon biker henchmen. That's just so bizarre. Surely this movie has to be just, like, riveting, right? Propelling a man. Boy, that language. Propelling a man into a spiraling. All this very uh, very active verb kind of language. Propelling a man into a spiraling surreal. Surreal for sure. Rampage. A vengeance. Um, oof. I was super disappointed in this experience. I watched Color Out of Space for the first time, also starring Nicolas Cage, uh, also from the same producers as this movie. I actually saw the trailer for this movie for the first time when I was uh, sitting down to watch Color Out of Space. And I saw this trailer for Mandy, and I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to see this thing, whatever this is, you know? It just looked so bizarre and Lovecraftian. And, I, you know, I was sitting down to watch a Lovecraft-inspired or, or adapted uh, movie in, in Color Out of Space. So I was like, wow, well, may, maybe this one's even better. Maybe this one's even more weird, jacked-up Lovecraftian, you know. The trailer looked like uh, very Hellraiser-inspired in terms of the monsters, you know. And, uh, and they were, you know. But the, the design of this movie... The style of this movie is super slow and weird for the sake of being weird, is how, is how it came across to me. Maybe there was intent and all kinds of meaning and symbolism and all kinds of stuff, you know, going on in the mind of the, the, the director and writer of this movie. He's called visionary by some critics, and he clearly has a vision, 
but it's just not a vision that connects with me at all. Um, lots of it. The main difference between an experience like this and say color out of space is color out of space starts in a very grounded place with characters that feel very normal that I could relate to that I could see myself in in order for me to connect with people in a horror movie experience I need to kind of be able to see their life as being somewhat similar to my own so that I can connect with them place myself in their shoes but with this movie it starts out with with such a surreal trance-like vibe and the characters even seem to be in a somewhat euphoric, almost dream state in the way they're just quietly talking to each other very slowly. And so I just find myself unable to connect with this. And the lighting from the very beginning starts off very surreal. Like, why is everything red? And now it's suddenly blue. And now it's a little bit purple as they transition from one to the other. And now it's going to be green for a little bit. You know, just like these really strong uh, monochrome color choices. Um, and so the the weirdness of the movie, the trance-like nature, the, the bizarreness of the movie starts at about an 8 out of 10. And it doesn't have much further to go. It just it goes up to 10 or 11, but that's... But, you know, you've already been sitting in 8 for long enough that for me I was just kind of numb after a while. And the pace, again, really didn't help at all. Uh, Nick, the, the personality traits of Nicolas Cage's character don't even start to really emerge until after the halfway point of the movie. And for me, I want to understand these characters and why I should connect with them and feel for them at the beginning. So that when things start going off the rails and going bad for them, I'm feeling for them. I'm relating to them. I'm imagining myself in their shoes. You know, But I couldn't do that with these characters because they were already kind of in a trance-like state uh partly because of their performances being just very subdued and quiet all the time the scenes between the two characters that we're supposed to care about at the beginning they're always lying down and just muttering to each other very softly just muttering very softly very slowly this is about the pace of all the dialogue for the first hour of the movie and indeed for the second hour of the movie as well whoa <laughs> oh my gosh um so yeah sparse dialogue slow dialogue the whole movie's very darkly lit uh so a lot is just obscured in shadow it's just dark nighttime a lot of the time even during the day they're they they stay inside a lot i mean i think there was a daytime shot but i'm honestly not sure as i think back to it because it was all just very even the daytime shots were strangely darkly lit um lots of moments of characters staring at the camera and just being trance like and what are they trying to put me in a trance i don't know it's just very bizarre long takes long cuts of that of staring at the camera uh un unexplained elements unrealistic elements you know and and in a movie like this that is creating this fantastical type of horror these demon biker things from clearly another world uh <laughs> you know you might say well pater the whole movie's supposed to be unrealistic you know it's all supposed to be trippy or whatever 
Well, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I, f- I feel like in a movie like this, I want it to start in a realistic place and then slowly or suddenly go off the rails. So again, I can feel that disconcerting feeling of uh, being taken from reality into a horrifying new status quo, you know. Uh, but they start in such with such a surreal vibe, you know. I mean, it's uh, there's like a moment where this character gets killed by Nicolas Cage and they kind of spurt blood all over him but there's no pulse to it it's just like a spray a stream of blood that goes for a while and I'm just like is this just supposed to be comically gory right now because that's the vibe I'm getting and yet it seems like they want me to take it seriously it's not like the movie you know dead alive uh where it's supposed to be supposed to be comically gory that's not what I sensed they were going for, but that's what I felt in that moment. I was like, this is just a weird gore moment, you know? And then there's also a moment at the back half of the movie where Nicolas Cage is suddenly blacksmithing this weird, bizarre-looking axe. I'm like, he started out as, I guess, supposedly a normal lumberjack, and now he's making this otherworldly-looking battle axe. Uh, I didn't know he could smith. I guess he can smith. <laughs> uh, and he's got an old weapon buddy that lives in a trailer out in the middle of the forest and they don't explain what their connection is but i guess he was holding on to an old weapon of his and it's just weird and then he he meets up with this guy this strange dude that owns a tiger i don't know what this I, i have no idea what's going on in this movie you know and um it didn't feel weird in an unsettling way color out of space felt weird in an unsettling way because it starts in a place that feels very relatable and then slowly goes off the rails i never felt like this movie started in a relatable place and so it was not unsettling to me it was like just like watching a weird extremely slow music video without the music for two hours you know it was just trippy for the sake of being trippy, and I didn't feel anything for all of its trippiness, you know? Um, and so that was a bummer. I was just waiting, waiting for this movie to get done. Um, let me talk about the cast. Like I said, they all speak in a slow, trance-like state. There was some good emoting from the cast at times, but again, the, the nature, the pace of how this movie was edited, the style in which it was shot and directed... I just, uh, even though these guys were giving, I think, pretty good performances in terms of what they were bringing to bear, the emotions they were portraying and summoning up from inside of themselves, you know, there were some good performances going on, but it all felt flat for me, not because of their performances, I don't think. It was because of the editing and just the style of this movie. Uh, Nicolas Cage feels very fitting at, at many points in this movie for me, but does let out the Nicolas Cage kookiness a couple times near the end that just fell flat felt silly to me um so yeah i just the the performances for the most part felt like they were these actors were giving good performances but the the nature of the beast of what this movie was just meant that they they didn't do anything for me they didn't have an effect on me i wasn't connected to their performances at all which is a real shame real shame because you got some solid actors in here um the stunts and visuals very practical 
this movie felt pretty much all in camera. It's all about the lighting and stuff, and the and there were some costumes for the bad guys, these demon bikers or whatever the crap they are, that very much felt like they came out of a Hellraiser movie. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some connection in terms of like costume design, art design, or whatever to uh, some of the Hellraiser movies. Um, there are minor effects that have to do with lighting or just some very basic uh, post-production camera effects, you know, that uh, just are there seemingly to enhance the trippiness. It feels like in terms of the effects, this is a movie that could have been made in the 80s, but that's not to say that uh, they looked bad. I mean, they weren't going for realism. They're just going for trippiness in the visual effects. Uh, It looks and feels in some ways like an 80s horror movie or like a really exaggerated trippy version of an 80s, you know, horror movie. Um, so it definitely is evoking the 80s. Speaking of that, I don't always talk about the music and sound, but I will in this movie. It's a, the, the soundtrack is slow synth padding, almost exclusively through the whole movie. Uh, there was a brief time where when the action starts picking up and Nicolas Cage just gets determined to go to town on these bad guys and it kind of becomes a, a vengeful you know, movie at that point. Um, there was a time where the, mo- the music did start to get a little bit rhythmic, a little bit more intense, but that was very brief. And then it felt like it went back into a ton of synth padding, long, slow chord progressions um, that, oh my gosh, did not help the, my feeling of intensity in this movie at all, at all. So uh, as far as themes go, I don't think there's anything that's going to be worthwhile in this movie in terms of bringing about some worthwhile thought or conversation. The, the cult in this movie has some trappings of Christianity. I mean, there's a cross that's re- represented at some point. Uh, the, they're called Jesus freaks at one point, but they don't, in terms of their belief systems, uh, well, I don't even know what their beliefs are. They're just spouting a bunch of weird, trippy stuff. And at one point, the leader of the cult openly criticizes Jesus, and so it doesn't seem like they uh, treat him as a reverent figure. Um, so there's just a few brief aesthetic references to Christianity, but it just totally goes, you know, off the rails. It's doing its own weird thing. Anyway, it's there's very little uh, exposition that describes what this cult is about or why they're doing what they're what they do. So it does. I don't think it's going to be a springboard for any worthwhile thought. Or a conversation. Uh, now, I have no idea what your tastes are in movies, but if I were a time traveler, I'd go back in time and say, Peter, skip this movie. Um, the trailer's a lie. The trailer's a lie. There's so much percussion and drive in the music of that trailer. There are fast, energetic cuts in that trailer. That trailer is nothing like what this movie feels like. Uh, this movie feels like it's just being weird and trippy for the sake of being artsy and weird and trippy, you know? Um, so maybe there are some people in the artistic community that genuinely have reasons for liking this movie because there's a context, an artistic context that they bring with them that leads them to enjoy this movie. I I don't know. Uh... I don't know. It boggles my mind that that people would look at this and say, oh, this is a just a great experience. I, I would think that, that this movie, if it is enjoyed by people, is enjoyed on maybe almost an, a pseudo or 
actually intellectual level from an artistic sense, you know, like, oh, this style evokes this art, and the inspiration here is from blah, 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 blah. I, maybe there's something to enjoy from artistic points of reference that I do not have access to in my experience. Um, Pater, you were totally detached from the proceedings from beginning to end. In this entire movie, bored, 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 waiting for it to end. What a shame. What a shame. Skip, skip, skip. All right. Well, uh, this one has an MPAA rating of unrated. <laughs> uh, but if I were to guess, if it were to go through the ratings process, it would it would be R for brutal violence and gore throughout. Extend an extended uh, scene involving male frontal nudity, some female nudity portrayed in a painting and through cell animation. Yes, there's scenes of cell animation. Because why not? Hey, that would be trippy if we just add some cell animation to this every now and then. Uh, there are sex acts being performed in the background on a TV in a scene where a person just has a, a, a porn movie playing uh, in the background. So yeah, that's probably, you know, roughly how it would be rated and why. At last, the power of the dragon amulet is mine. It overwhelms your feeble defenses. You will now agree with all of my opinions and everything, everything I say, even if it sounds stupid and wrong. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you very much, Asher, for what was that? That was the song from Oblivion. Oblivion. Skyrim. Uh, no, no, no. No, no. Obliv- no Skyrim. It's Elder Scroll Elder Scrolls for, for Oblivion. Oblivion. No Skyrim involved. That's right. No Skyrim involved. All right. Uh, so I'm Peter Franson from Spirit Blade Productions and ChristianGeekCentral.com, uh, and this is my son Asher joining me, especially for this review. We're enjoying some time off. Uh, this is our uncut review of Mythica, A Quest for Heroes. Um, the synopsis on IMDb reads, Stuck in a life of indentured servitude, Merrick dreams of becoming a wizard. When she meets a beautiful priestess, Tila, in need of help, Merrick escapes her master and puts together a team of adventurers and embarks on an epic quest to free Tila's sister from a vicious ogre. Uh, I have some weird associations with some of these names. They spell it differently, but the main uh, character's name is Merrick. It's a female character, and in the audio drama trilogy I produced a number of years ago, the main character is a male, and his name is Merrick, spelled differently. And then Tila is the name of, like, the main female protagonist in the Masters of the Universe. Do you remember that character name being from Masters of the Universe? What? <laughs> so for some reason they use that name here too and so I have mixed feelings and weird feelings I didn't feelings. even think about that yeah yeah totally um, so anyway let's talk well first let me just get your general reactions to this movie did you like it did you not like it what do you think I think it was this oh, <laughs> whatever thumb, your face two was. thumbs up with gaping smile that, that picture that I take of myself and use it in reviews yes <laughs> 
<laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, that's that's me. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, I I like it too. I, this is the second time I've seen it. I've never actually reviewed this movie before, but I've talked about it in our Summer of Free uh, segments a couple of times. It's a five movie series, the Mythica series, that starts with Mythica: A Quest for Heroes. And so we're just going to focus on the first movie. Um, but I think the thoughts that at least I'm going to share generally apply to all the movies in this series. So. Um, yeah, so what did you think about the basic story? Was this did you find the story interesting? Yes, I did actually. And also I just want to add the the first movie was pretty good, but I I just want to say I think Lord of the Rings is better. I think it's still better, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, I th- I think so too. What would you say is like better about Lord of the Rings? Well, you put a lot more... F- they put a lot more feeling into the movies. What do you mean yeah. by feeling? Yeah, well, um... Is it okay if I spoil this? Uh, if there's yeah, there's like, going to there's gonna be a little bit of spoilers for... Uh, spoil for what? Lord of the Rings? or yeah, Lord of the Rings. You can totally spoil Lord of the Rings. If you haven't seen okay. the, the classic Lord of the Rings trilogy, then you're out of luck. So yeah, go ahead. Spoil the Lord of the Rings away. <laughs> okay, so... Um, so, um, I like how they put a little more, um, feeling into Lord of the Rings, like people dying, especially Boromir. So. Yeah, it was really emotional. The Lord of the Rings had a lot of these really heavy emotional moments, right? Yeah, but, um, Mythica didn't really have a lot of those moments. No. You had characters getting hurt, but f- you didn't feel the emotions in the same way. Um, as 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 in the Lord of the Rings, because maybe having these realistic characters that you really cared about wasn't as important to them in this movie. Yeah, and um, also I didn't really feel like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? As much as I did for Lord of the Rings, because okay. um, yeah, um, I didn't really feel that as much as Lord of the Rings was. So those are two reasons why I think Lord of the Rings is still better than Mythica, but. Mythic, but um, no offense to Mythica, I still think it's a good. They're good movies. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. I, I think this this first one is is good for what it is. This is a, a full on fantasy story that evokes tons of D and D style tropes. You know, whereas the Lord of the Rings movies really have a lot of moments where there's nothing fantastical going on. There's no, It's just people out in nature, and maybe some of them have pointy ears, and maybe some of them are short, you know, dwarves or whatever. But there's not, like, a ton of uh, of magic stuff going on. You know, you've got the, the, the Dark Riders in the Hoods, whatever their names are. You know, sorry, I'm not a big Tolkien fan. Um, but you don't have a lot of spell flinging going around back and forth, or spells being used and stuff. Do you remember what the... You're going to tell me what the Wait. name... I'm going to tell you what the name of the hooded... I think I just remembered. You tell me, though. I think... I don't know how it's pronounced. It's like wraiths or... Wraiths. Yeah, ring wraiths. Ring wraiths. That's right. Yeah. They were the Nine Kings, right? Yeah, something like that. But anyway, we're not talking about Lord of the Rings. Uh, But yeah, lots of D&D style tropes. So like being in a cave in a dungeon and opening up a treasure chest. Remember when she opened up the treasure chest and found some stuff in there? Or like when when she casts spells, she'll pull out spell components. You know, oh, yeah. that's a very D and D thing. You know, for magic to involve a pouch of spell components and then maybe some spoken words, and then the spell happens. You know. Yeah. Well, Gandalf spoke stuff too, but there really was not a lot of magic involving stuff in the first two movies. It wasn't very visible. Yeah, it was pretty much just like 
hey, I'm gonna lift you up in the air without touching you or whatever. Yeah, and like, then uh, breaking stuff. It's not. It's not really like visual effects. There's not a lot of that, but yeah. And I really like visual effects with my magic. I don't know if you feel the same. Oh way. yeah, I I totally feel the same. Yeah, yeah. And like Harry Potter does really oh, well yeah, at that. that is Lots the, of that is like the best magic producing thing I have ever watched. Yeah. That. Super cool, super cool. And so even though the visual effects aren't as good in this movie, which we're going to get to, um, they are a lot more uh, frequent, you know? Um, so, gosh, my timer just went off, so I'm going to have to remember to... i got to do some laundry after this. You can help me remember okay. that. Okay. So, uh, let's see here. Yeah, it's totally unashamed um, to be steeped in that D&D kind of fantasy aesthetic. It's made for fans of that aesthetic and fans of those tropes. Um, there's And there's a few things that are just kind of weird where they're talking about fantasy concepts that are just kind of thrown in there that fans of fantasy are going to have no problem with. But if this were for general audiences, like someone like my dad would be like, this was weird. I didn't understand what they were talking about, you know. So um, there's lots of action and predicaments that are typical of fantasy RPGs. So it really scratches those kinds of itches. This is a, a movie that really seems designed to scratch specific itches for fans of D&D style fantasy. Uh, the dialogue, the way people talk to each other has that kind of faux antiquated fantasy vibe that also feels a little bit stiff because of that which might have contributed to me not connecting with the characters as much i'm not sure um the characters do though interestingly i think butt heads because of their different values and perspectives on the world and on what drives them some of them are trying to help save somebody some one of the characters is just in it for money one of the characters is committed to just doing the right thing and and um being true to the vows that they make and stuff like that and and even as they're they're butting heads because of the different things they value, they do develop some respect and friendship through adversity over the course of the story. And so it kind of like, uh, it's kind of got a little bit of feel-good element going on in there. Um, the central character, though, is Merrick. Uh, she's like the underdog character, recently liberated slave who, although crippled, dreams of having this better life. But she has this darkness inside of her that she only begins to recognize in this movie. And that's a major subplot in all the movies that follow five uh, total, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so there, there are, in terms of the story, there are some interesting things to me going on um, that, uh, that, that helped me connect to the experience and, and stay engaged in it. And make me interested in uh, watching the rest of the movies. Even though I've seen them all, my memory's faded enough that I want... Are you interested in seeing maybe more of this series after this? I am... I'm interested in seeing, like, every single one. I enjoy it. All right, good, good. Uh, okay, so let's talk about the actors and their performances. What did you think about their, the actors and their performances? I think they all did pretty well. Yeah? Um, yeah, I think they all did pretty well. There's nothing really more to be said because I don't want to give something away. Okay, that's wise. Um, yeah, it's it seems to be a choice in this movie to have a, a performance style that's slightly overstated or maybe a little bit too simplistic and not like layered with subtext uh, a lot. Um, and you know, so, so I, I find the performances to fall short of say what they would be in a big budget movie or a movie that's really giving attention to character. Like if we go back to the Lord of the Rings, I would say that definitely the performances in Lord of the, in the Lord of the Rings movies are much more relatable. They're much more interesting. They're, there's a lot more subtlety and subtext to those kinds of performances. This is, uh, similar to the, the caliber or style that you might see, well... 
I was going to say the CW, like CW TV shows, but I think that CW is a little bit harder for me to watch <laughs> for the performances than than this uh, than this movie. Um, but some of that is because of the shooting style, I think, that doesn't allow for as many close-ups, and so you don't have as many opportunities for subtlety in this movie because they can only do so many camera setups in a in a day of shooting on a lower budget like this. Um, but it also potentially could be the the chosen style uh, of the performances or the limitation of the actors i'm not sure it could be a combination of all those things but the the net result is uh, performances that just don't feel as strong and engaging and real relatable or realistic to me um and yet i still developed attachment to these characters were there, were there any characters that you like liked in particular in this story well I really liked... What's the warrior guy's name? Oh, uh, Tay... Let me see. Let me jump to IMDb really quick here. Um, his character name is Thane. Thane. Yeah, I yeah. real. I, um... There are three characters that I like in particular. Any warrior character, ranger character, or wizard character. I th um, Mythica put all three of those in there, in there except for um, uh, the ranger part was put into the thief. Yeah, because he was using bow and arrow stuff. Yeah, but yeah. which I don't really like as much. I oh. I would like it if he was just like a full on ranger. This is only my opinion. I just like I just um, sure. I really like those three. But yeah, um. In in my and also in my opinion, um, I'm not really the sort of guy that likes people sneaking around. Not really. You don't. Okay. No. Uh, I don't, I don't know why. I just um. I think. I can. How about I say? Uh, how can I say? Um, rangers, warriors, and wizards are more entertaining. Okay. So. Yeah, um, I also I also like to watch thieves, but those are but rangers, warriors, and wizards are pretty much my favorite. So um, let's just say that um, I liked the I like the all th I like those three characters the most. Okay. Um, oh, I forget their names again. That's all right. I was going to ask you, is it because um, the thief, there's there's more action involved with those other types of characters where a thief is just kind of being quiet and walking and like I, sneaking around? Wait, I, th I think you found it. Okay. I, I like, I just like pretty much action. Gotcha. That's what I like. And also I just want to add Mythica does a good job adding a lot of that into it. It it has a lot of action, doesn't it? Yeah, compared to Lord of the Rings, it's more like talking with one another. That's true. Yeah, but Mythica um puts more action in there than Lord of the Rings does, which is what I like about it. Yeah, I mean the runtime is a lot shorter. You know, even a theatrical release Lord of the Rings movie, just one of them is is probably two and a half hours. You know, whereas Mythica is only an hour and a half. But the amount of that time, the percentage of that time that is spent in action sequences, is a much higher percentage, I think, than uh, at least the first one or two Lord of the Rings. Like movies. ninety to ninety-five percent is action. Would you say? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's that strong, but it it can feel that way, I think. It feels like yeah. the action is always going and pe they're constantly moving forward, even as they are taking time for character moments and stuff like that. I, I never felt like 
boy, when is this talking going to stop? Yeah. You know? Uh, let's see here. Um... So, and yeah, I, I did develop an attachment to these characters. It was uh, gratifying to see their relationships develop, you know, uh, even if I would have liked the performances to be of a different style and caliber. Uh, it was still effective in connecting me to the characters. Okay, so let's talk about what this movie looked like in terms of its costumes, its makeup, its effects, the fight scenes and stuff. Uh, what, did, what did you think about all that? Ask me one at a time, because okay. I cannot remember. Okay, yeah, sure. Okay, so what did you think of the costumes and makeup? The costumes and makeup was pretty good, actually. Okay. Um, and, yeah. Um, I like the look of the warrior. I mean, I forget the names. Thane, but... Thane and um, Tila's the, the priest. Merrick is the, uh, the the sorceress lady. Yeah, and... I, like the, I like the look of... Who is... Dagon's the thief. Dagon, wait, you mean like Moogrin's Dagon? No. Yeah, a little bit. It sounds a little <laughs> bit like that, <laughs> but Dagon instead of Dagon. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyway, Dagon. Um. I like his costume because it's, it's all ragged. It, it's sort of ragged. Yeah. Um. The thief we're talking about. The thief. Oh, okay. Yeah. You see? Did you happen to look at the gloves? Oh, does he have like cut their fingers exposed? So yeah. it's like gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's one of the. I don't know why. It's one of the things my eyes always move to. Okay. But yeah, the look uh, for the costumes. Yeah, it always moves to. I always look for the gloves for some reason. Yeah, that's a cool look. I think they do that so that his his uh, palm. Uh, can be protected when he's using weapons, but so his fingers can be free to do the work that thieves need to do. I, that would be my guess. And maybe also to work the, the bowstring. It's easier with the fingers exposed. Yeah. For example, lockpick stuff. Yes, totally. Yeah, you gotta have, you can't have big bulky gloves on for doing that kind of work. Oh, yeah. Um, so the, the orcs, I thought, uh, looked pretty good, although I think wisely they probably avoided doing close-ups because I'm, I would guess on close examination they wouldn't hold up compared to like the, the orc costume and makeup from the Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah, the Lord of the Rings is like much more monstery um, and um, and a lot more scary um, mm -hmm. yeah. compared to Mythica. It's just like oh, look, there's an orc. Not like Ooh, jeez, it's an orc. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They're, they're content to just show you from far away, and the orcs, they're, they're not trying to scare you with the orcs or intimidate you and make you go, you know, when you look at an orc. Yeah, you know? I know. They're just orcs. They're they're menacing. They they look the way they're supposed to look to be an orc, and that's about it, you know. Um, let's see. I would have liked Tila, the priestess, to not have hair that looked so nice, and makeup that looked so perfect. I mean, she looked like she was ready to be a runway model, you know? I mean, she looked uh, very made up. Um, and it kind of made her stand out in a way that I, I didn't care for in a world that was otherwise pretty earthy. You know, people had kind of messed up hair. People looked kind of dirty and stuff. Now, maybe there's something... Oh, no, I go can, ahead. I can see that now. I mean, yeah. Um, at first, when you were talking, I was like... I don't know what you're talking about, but when you got to, like, all the other people dirty um, and stuff, yeah, I can totally see what you're saying. I, I agree with you. Okay. Yeah. Now, maybe in the intent of the world, priestesses of her order all take really good care of themselves, or they're, they're very wealthy in that order, that religion, and so they get all the fancy makeup and hair product or whatever, but they don't tell us that 
in the story itself. And so I'm just left to wonder, why does she look so much more made up than any of the other characters do uh, that we come across, whether they're inside the party or outside of the party. There's like no one else that looks as done up uh, as she does. And so it feels a little bit like that artificial CW uh, product-y sheen, you know, is is getting put on her. And I'm not a fan of that. It kind of takes me out a little bit. But the rest of the, I felt pretty good about the rest of the costumes and makeup. Sounds yeah. like you did too. Um, let's talk about the visual effects, the special effects and stuff. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised that it came out in 2014, yet um, the visual, I'll just say, the the visual effects weren't as good as I hoped them to be, because yeah. <laughs> they, they looked more old time than 2014-ish. Yes. I mean, what other movie, what other fantasy movies came, what other movies came out in 2014? Uh, I don't know, but the Wait, Marvel movies. Oh, yeah. There were certainly Marvel movies that came out in 2014. Yeah. Um, the explosions looked more real in, in Marvel movies. Way more real. Yeah. Yeah, and even in the Lord of the Rings movies, which came out in the early 2000s, yeah. looked much better in terms of their visual effects than this movie does. One thing that you probably didn't know about this is this movie was made on a very small budget. They had far less money than uh, than other movies do that are released in theaters. This movie never came out in theaters all over the country. It was a small movie that was made mainly to be sold digitally online for people to watch online. We watched it on Amazon Prime where you can, uh, at this point, and for as long as I can remember, uh, watch all of the movies in this series for free. You can also watch them for free on a lot of free streaming services. If you check like Vudu or some of those other, you know, services that have free options, um, 2B TV maybe has them. Uh, but anyway, uh, so yeah, I, I don't know what the budget was, um, but it was, it was very low. And so the, the result is that the, it just visually by theatrical standards today, it looks bad. There's no getting around that, especially when we're talking about the, 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 digital effects it just looks bad it's cheap cg um the fight choreography is very simple i don't know if you noticed that at all but like when they're fighting it's not like a marvel movie where there's all these crazy acrobatics and stuff and crazy jumping around and stuff no it's basically like they're lumbering into each other and then you see them swing and then one of them falls over you know yeah like it's just like clash a couple times with swords Stab. Yeah. And like there was one time where a guy got stabbed and I could even, you know, partly because I've I'm just oh, I've been around long enough that I can see the signs of these things. The sword clearly did not go into his center. It went off to his side, you know, so that they wouldn't stab the actor. But they're trying to make it look like they did. You know, I'm just like, oh, you can't do that for this camera angle. It's way too obvious that you're just sliding it next to him. Uh, but it was very brief. And so I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily pick up on that, you know. Yeah, I didn't see that. Yeah, okay. So see, you you might not run into the same problem. It was just one time. Um, the, the rest of the time, it, it does what it needs to do to convey the act to move things forward but there's a lot of cut corners there's a moment where a giant is supposed to have picked up two characters and it's a CG giant and he lumbers toward the characters and we see him coming down toward them and then we cut away uh, to see another character reacting to what's happening and then we see 
the character's not on the ground anymore, and we just see the back of the giant as he walks away, and we hear the people call out something. And I'm like, oh, so I guess the giant picked up those people? Did you kind of have yeah, that same feeling? Yeah, I had that exact feeling, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's because I think they just had to cut the corner. You know, you can't... It would be. It would have been a, an expensive thing to show a CG giant picking up two physical actors and making that happen, that, that's an involved type of effect and a shot to do. And so they just kind of cut the corner and didn't show him actually picking them up and just use context clues <laughs> to, to communicate to us that the giant had picked up these two people. So that's just one example to kind of zoom in on, but there's little things like that all over the movie. But I felt like they also um, clearly were trying to give us a lot despite the limitations. For example, they used repeated use of slow motion to kind of highlight moments of action and try to make it look a little bit cool now and then. There was creative editing to portray the thoughts of characters or magic that was at work in someone's mind, you know. Um, and although it looks cheap, for those that at least want to see magic instead of having it invisible or unspectacular, like the wizard's fight in Fellowship of the Ring that basically just looked like a couple old Jedis going at it, uh, but less cool. <laughs> in this movie, magic is visible. No matter what it looks like, it's visible, it's colorful, um, and it's uh, frequent, and at times even cool looking, you know, um, although it's obvious, obviously on a budget. So there's, there's kind of a trade-off there. Um... Just want to add, um, wait. We, okay, we can come back to that. If okay. you think of it, we'll come back to it. Uh, let's see here. Uh, the, the creature costumes, I already commented on that. Um, in general, I would say this looks like a mid-2000s television quality uh, production value thing overall. You know, if you, if you were watching... Um, the Legend of the Seeker back in the uh, mid two thousands, or some other kind of show in the in the early to mid two thousands that was using visual effects, it looks a bit like that. And and when I just kind of put myself in the mindset of like, okay, let's not expect this to be a modern movie, or even like a theatrical movie that would have released in twenty fourteen, um, or even in twenty ten, and instead put myself in the mindset of, hey, I used to enjoy TV shows that had this quality of visual effects. Can I put my mind back into that space to accept these effects for what they are and just let them move the story forward and show me some cool uh, ideas, even if the execution is a little bit weak, you know? Um, if I can put myself in that space, and I can for the sake of this kind of D&D &D aesthetic itch-scratching movie, um, then I can really enjoy it for what it is. And uh, I, I accept that trade-off for getting this unapologetic D&D-style fantasy. Um, just briefly about the music and sound. Uh, the budget, I think, is exposed again here. The score is sampled orchestra, you know, effects and sounds. And so, uh, but the score itself is solid uh, and similar to the quality and vibe of, say, like the Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter Nights PC games um, from, you know, around actually the, the early to mid 2000s. It also adds layers of electronica and electric guitar for a bit in one part of the movie that. Yeah, I, I remember that. You remember that? Which was kind of a nice change of pace and brown, down, down, you know, just whatever they were doing, it kind of changed up the feel a little bit while uh, that one character was by themselves and um, and pushing onward, you know. Um, it does feel a bit overdone compared to the visuals at times. I'm like, oh man, this music is overselling what visually is not uh, a really compelling moment, you know. Um, but otherwise, it felt very fitting to me, and I think it helps to elevate the whole product and make it feel bigger and more epic than it is just based on the visuals alone. Um, 
Okay, so let's talk briefly about the themes in this thing. Is there anything of moral, philosophical, or spiritual significance going on that might trigger some worthwhile thought or conversation? Um, I found that each character, you know, has different views and values, and those perspectives are bumping uh, up against each other, and there are, are, I think, as a result, multiple potential springboards for thought or discussion if you're looking for it. I don't think it naturally is going to trigger that. But the strongest theme centers on Merrick. Uh, Merrick wants the gods to heal her, but she is met with refusal because of this darkness that's inside of her. Um, and her, her pleading to the gods turns into bitterness toward them instead when she doesn't get what she really wants from them. And this I think really reflects or parallels um, at least the, the pain and feelings of rejection that we can feel even as believers in Jesus when we ask God for something that seems to be a good request that a loving God should should answer and, and say yes to but instead we're met with silence or we're met with what really looks like a no you know we can just feel pain we can feel rejection in the middle of that you know um, the movie doesn't moralize on this issue or make any implicit statements about God, you know, and real world belief in God. But thematically, I do think that it, that many people are going to relate to that strain or uh, disconnect that they might feel in relationship with God that comes with suffering or uh, discontent. All right. Now, we have no idea what your preferences are in movies. But if we could travel through time, we would go back in time and say, you want to do a time travel effect with me? I would say, Pater. Uh, hey, watch this one for free. It's free. Uh, you don't have to pay any money for it. You can at least get it on Tubi TV or Vudu or something like that. And you already have an Amazon Prime subscription. You can watch it on there. You can likely watch all of these for free. And they're worth it for that. Um, you might not binge them and want to watch them all back to back. But, you know, maybe now and then or while you're doing something else. Uh, they're rough around the edges. Obviously budget. But they offer this unapologetic D&D aesthetic fan uh, style fantasy with characters that you're going to actually be surprised to realize you care about um so you might consider these movies a guilty pleasure but they certainly do bring you some pleasure what would you say to yourself i think i'm back in dairy queen i'm watching myself watch a trailer hang on oh yeah we showed him the trailer at dairy queen last night yeah. Psst. hey you should watch it it's awesome <laughs> Yeah, uh, so we really enjoyed this for what it is, even with its serious shortcomings and limitations, because of the things I think that we both kind of want from uh, movies. Uh, we are willing to put up with some stuff in uh, in order to get the things that this movie offers. Uh, it has. Wait, what? can I read the ratings? You. All? Oh yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Okay, so uh, the movie is unrated. It has non-gory violence, some brief and light sexual references, and a few creepy monsters. Yeah. And Asher, I mean, every kid is different. Every parent and parenting style is different. Um, we thought this was a good fit for Asher. And also for our younger son, who's uh, nine, Asher is... Twelve. Twelve at this moment. Um, and uh, uh, the, our youngest didn't stick around and watch it. He kind of wasn't interested to watch the whole yeah. thing. But I, I even felt like you know uh, that would be this would be a fine experience to navigate with our nine year old. So uh, anyway, for more information about the specifics of like the content and you know a, kind of a blow by, blow by blow description, imdb.com is a great resource. But uh, uh, yeah, that's about all we have to say for now. Data collection complete. Activating Musenet 1.0. 
This week at YouTube.com slash Christian Geek Central, lots of movies, lots of movies. You can see my uh, uncut reviews of Freaks, Mandy, Mythica, A Quest for Heroes, Batman 1989, Bloodshot, and then also there's a non, the, the single non uh, movie video that's up there is titled, titled Lousy Playing and Family Ribbing. That's part 16 of my Extra Life live stream. My sister was joining me for a good part of uh, that stream, and uh, she is uh, definitely enjoying kind of ribbing me. And uh, we talk about, you know, just f- other family members and the, you know, quirks in our family a little bit. And uh, I get made fun of by my brother in law. And <laughs> so that was a good time. Uh, it was a good hour. And I also am playing Monster hunter world iceborne terribly i'm terribly uh ill-equipped for the hunt that i'm on and then eventually i move on to uh for the second half of that hour castlevania circle of the moon which i was enjoying a lot more not especially playing uh a lot better but uh, was definitely in enjoying a lot more so anyway uh those videos are up on our youtube channel while you're there please like share subscribe and in general do anything you want to help spread this content around to those you think can benefit from it and i'd be very grateful for that uh let's see here what else um i've got a patron live stream this monday march 16th from 5 p.m to 6 p.m pacific that's actually uh a change i made a mistake i forgot to factor in the time change i had originally put from 6 p.m to 7 p.m pacific but that's incorrect uh maybe i didn't forget the time time change but i might have goofed that for some other reason anyway the correct time that i'm going to be doing that live stream uh it's 5 p.m to 6 p.m pacific i guess it's not technically a live stream i've been experimenting with live streaming again um since our internet connection or my ability to live stream actually has seem seems to have improved since getting my new hard drive last fall so uh it's technically it's just a discord hangout that i am recording you know and uh, then putting up as a video later on where you can see me playing video games while i chat with patrons at the five dollar and higher tier so uh that is still what's going on except i have been live streaming it as an experiment so i may officially make that again part of the uh the promoted tier level um to be a part of that live stream instead of just calling it a discord hangout but anyway uh that's for the five dollar and up patrons however the archive is posted afterward for all patrons to uh to watch and uh enjoy or yeah so um or not enjoy (laughs) and then uh, just a reminder at 30 patrons we're four away we're having a pizza with an asterisk party on discord um, so I'm looking forward to doing that as soon as we get there. And again, I want to thank all of my patrons who are uh, putting their money down at whatever level to support what I'm doing month to month. It makes it possible for me to plan things and to uh, come up with new ideas and explore new territory. So I just uh, I couldn't do that reliably um, without you guys. So uh, thank you so much to all of my patrons. For more information about becoming a patron, again, patreon.com slash Productions. And now the Weekly Wasteline, 1 Corinthians 9, 25-27 in the ESV reads, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. 
As geeks, we're known for our creativity and intelligence, but not especially known for our self-control when it comes to the pleasures of life. So 1 Corinthians 9, 25-27 is the mission verse for me as I aim to be more responsible with my body and grow in my ability to, just in general, say no to desires of all kinds. My goal is to lose 6 inches off my starting waistline of 42 inches. My wife is joining me trying to lose 4 inches. Since we do need some help as we develop this discipline, there is a prize pool of fun money waiting for each of us at the end and a $50 bonus to whoever gets there first. For more details about the whole thing, you can listen to episode 565 for now. The weekly waistline for me is 39.25. I had been on a streak for uh, four weeks of being stuck at 39.5, and last week I just expressed that I had had enough of it. I needed to see the needle change, and so I just got a lot more strict this week. Mainly, um, well, let me mention uh, really briefly, no change for Holly. She's still, for her third week in a row now, at 1.5 inches away. Um, So this week I, you know, we had family in town for uh really the whole week that I was uh you know doing measurements for from Wednesday to Wednesday basically and so that was super challenging they brought all kinds of goodies into the house that they bought from the nearby grocery store cuz it was their vacation right and of course they're willing to share those things they just you know whenever they do that when they come and visit they make it known these are for everybody you know um and so there was just a lot of sugary carby stuff in the house and that's exactly what I was trying to Uh, eliminate as much as possible from my diet this week. And I was pretty surprised at my success at doing that, um, despite a lot of temptation. Um, What helped a lot was to just buy more and fill up a ton on vegetables, Uh, mainly green beans, green peas, corn, which does have a little more carbs than other vegetables, carrots as well, and just really loading up on vegetables as much as possible because those are pretty, I mean, like, as, as far as, like, if there's overlap in various diets and different different approaches that you could take to living, vegetables are a pretty, you know, except for maybe some of the carby, the more carby ones, um, but green vegetables... Uh, especially, are are pretty, like, accepted. And no matter what kind of weird diet, trendy thing you're trying, vegetables are pretty safe. They're pretty, they're pretty, a pretty guilt-free food. So I was trying to basically fill up big time on guilt-free food. Um, not because it was, you know, convincing myself it's extra yummy, although I do actually like a, a number of vegetables, and so that helps quite a bit. Uh, but just being filled up on guilt-free stuff helps me to deal with the temptations, you know, and no matter what kind of dietary changes you're making, you're always going to be dealing with some kind of temptation there. I don't think there is a diet in the world unless you are already wired to not be tempted to like certain types of food. I don't think there's a diet in the world where when, when you get on it and make a change, you're not dealing with some kind of temptation for, for putting something in your body that you're trying to avoid putting in your body. And so what I found helpful was just to make sure I was full um, the moment any of those temptations started or even, you know, nip it in the bud before I got particular cravings, just be full on completely guilt-free stuff. And that helps. And and water, of course, is a, is a, is a big part. You know, that is the ultimate guilt-free substance that you can put inside of your body to, to help deal with the cravings, at least to some degree. Um, so anyway, uh, I... I, you know, after I did a little bit of it last week, this week, I really tried to keep track of my, 
uh, things that I put in my body that were not necessarily part of what I wanted to be eating, you know, with my body or with my diet. Um, so the first one was popcorn. I did have my medium popcorn last week. I'm going to come back to that thought, though, because I think I might actually be able to do those week to week and be fine. Have my medium popcorn while I watch a movie. Um, and then since, you know, there's fat content, and I was like not sure how I felt about that because I'm not full on going like keto or low carb or whatever. So it was I had mixed feelings. I had a hamburger patty, just the patty, not the bun, and a cheese slice, had a hot dog along with that. So I was like, ah, let's make a note of these. I, I don't, I'm not sure how, you know, if I can feel good about these or what this will do to me. I was just for now collecting data you know what i mean um uh i had a small bag from subway of baked barbecue chips and then i had a wrap there with a spinach a spinach wrap that was like um all veggie i think no 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 it was turkey and veggie um, but i felt pretty good about you know the turkey and uh, and then s- stuffed it with a bunch of veggies and stuff and a little bit of uh uh vinaigrette sauce and so that was actually uh pretty good it was a good lunch and then i had you know some kind of uh some kind of a fairly low-carb, you know, alternative drink option. And then my mother-in-law made uh, waffles, but they were banana waffles, like whole wheat banana waffles. So she was trying to, you know, uh, be thoughtful in some way, you know, but still still carby, even if it's whole wheat. So I wrote that down. I had a half of a banana waffle. These are big waffles. One waffle fills up a whole, you know, full-size plate. Um, and then I had, and I had uh, some eggs along with that, but I was like, ah, uh, you know, that's, uh, if I'm going with this kind of more... Uh, low carb kind of thing then eggs are pretty uh pretty guilt-free um i did have a medium blizzard uh my parents wanted to treat us to blizzards after we went to uh an event of theirs um and so i was like okay i'm gonna do it everybody otherwise i'm gonna be sitting in dairy queen while everyone around me is having ice cream so i had a medium peanut butter cup blizzard then on monday we we got taken out for pizza but there was a gluten-free option so my wife and i split a gluten-free cheese with green pepper pizza i did have a pepsi that night um, and then oh, that same night, then my in-laws wanted to treat us to Dairy Queen. It was their last night with us. That was Tuesday. And it was kind of a novelty to be going to Dairy Queen. And so I think they just wanted to do Dairy Queen again because for them out east in Pennsylvania, their Dairy Queen's only open during the summer, you know. So so that was another medium blizzard. Um, but aside from all those things I just named, I was completely eating, you know, like well, almost 100% eating guilt-free, very low-carb food. You know, and uh, and so and 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 it shows because the measurement went down a quarter of an inch. I think if I wouldn't have um, had those blizzards and that Pepsi and that Pepsi, I think it was heading toward thirty nine point two five. It did actually, you know, at one point I was having to round up to thirty nine point two five. I was like, oh my gosh, I am on the way to thirty nine. I could be at thir- I could lose a half inch this week if not for these dumb blizzards. Um, but you know, ultimately 39.25, but still a loss. I was very, very excited, very pleased this week now with lots of leftover meat, um, that for meals that I made, um, I'm leaning into the meat side of this, you know, potential, you know, approach of having low carb and high fat. I'm not necessarily eager to consume high fat because that just, uh, just the idea makes me a little bit nervous. So I'm, but I'm definitely reducing carbs, reducing carbs as much as I possibly can. And then I'm allowing myself to have meat and not trying not to worry about it, you know, and then lots of veggies and stuff. So, so far, uh, as of today, I'm recording this on Friday morning, no change 
since my measurement on Wednesday morning, uh, still a 39.25. We'll see. I'm just going to kind of stick with this until all the meat is done, and then I'll probably just lean into vegetables uh, again uh, for the most part, still eliminating carbs wherever I can. Uh, I looked at the health facts for the popcorn, the medium popcorn that I have uh, every week, and it's actually, it's 50 carbs, which if you're doing like a strict, I've I've been using this uh, website called Diet Doctor, which I even hate to put specifics out there because everybody has so many different opinions about what you should do on your diet. So, you know, I'm sure that's going to trigger an email from somebody to say, oh, diet doctor, that's, they're terrible or whatever, you know. So you guys can send me that stuff if you want. I've, I try not to get into specifics too much. I, even like after recording last week's podcast, I was like saying, I said that I was kind of loosely on a low carb, you know, pseudo low carb kind of thing, you know. And, and then as I looked into what a low carb diet is and what foods don't work on that, I was like, oh, I'm going to. I'm going to get some emails from people that know more and have adhered more to this kind of diet, you know. So I hate to say too many specifics uh, because I it's not I don't really want this segment to be about you guys merely rooting for me and trying to help me. What I'm what I want this segment to be about is me just sharing the struggle of trying to change eating habits um, so that no matter what kind of thing you might be trying you'll have some kind of parallels that you can relate to. And so I get into specifics just to share a little bit of the heart of my journey. Um, not necessarily to, you know, uh, expect you guys to to be helping me out or whatever, you know what I mean? And it's hard to know who to listen to anyway. I mean, it's great if, you know, somebody has great success uh, with something, you know, but I mean, who knows? Everybody's body is a little bit different and everybody's history of food is a little bit different. And there's details, I'm sure, that I'm not sharing here about what's going on during my week as far as my exercise and maybe things I've forgotten to mention that I'm taking in or, you know, so there's just so many things that are different. So uh, it's uh, so if you ever want to send me an email with any suggestions or recommendations, that's that's totally cool. I'm totally, you know, open to that. I'm not necessarily going to, you know, take that advice and run with it, you know, um, because I just it's just hard to know who to listen to, you know. And I think it also reflects the journey that you might find yourself on where, you know, you're going to when you're cha- making lifestyle changes, you're going to hear from different people with different ideas. And ultimately, the journey is yours. And you have to decide to try things out and just see what happens for a little while, you know. But the core of the journey is the saying no, you know, you're saying no to something, you're saying yes to other things. And so that's hopefully what I hope that, uh, you know, you're, you're getting something out of as I'm sharing my journey with you. So, uh, we will see, like I said, I'm going to see what happens when I, you know, um, inadvertently kind of lean more into uh, something that's a little closer to a classical keto diet this week um, with the the meat that we need to get rid of. Um, We'll see how that goes. But no matter what happens, I'm reminding myself again, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27 in the ESV, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Um, which, you know, I should mention the, the, uh, the, a good part of the heart of this is not just to lose the weight and to, or to see the waistline go down. You know, Paul is talking here about learning to discipline our bodies for the sake of what God wants to do in our lives. And, you know, immediately, of course, God wants to bring about, you know, he wants me to have a healthy body that functions well day to day and that also uh, will function good in the long term if, uh, you know, he chooses to let me stay, you know, without taking me for, from some other cause, you know. Um, I want to have a body that works well for him both day to day and 
if he's willing for many, many years to come, you know, even when other people's bodies might start winding down at later stages of life, I want to have habits now that will help me be useful uh, to him in as many ways as possible later on in my life. Um, and then also, apart from my body uh, and how it works, learning self-control through your body allows you to learn self-control in other areas of life, you know. Uh, the, the Christian life is about saying no to a lot of things and saying yes to some other things in order to really enter into the purpose that God has for us. And so um, learning to control your body um, to keep it under control is a training ground for all other kinds of, of spiritual disciplines um, that God wants to uh, see grow in your life. So anyway, didn't mean to interrupt this verse. I just, I just wanted to put that in there so that you guys understand the, the context that, that Paul is driving at here. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. This is not just about a waistline. There is something imperishable that I'm aiming at here. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Stay tuned for another update on our weekly waistline next time. My father once told me that I could use my powers to make a difference. He told me I had a responsibility to help others. He told me I could save this world. Save everyone. Then he told me, walk the gerbil, walk the gerbil. Frickin' weirdo. 1989's Batman. Now this was the first PG-13 movie that I had ever watched. Uh, one of the first for Asher. He's watched a number of Marvel movies and a few other things. But he is the same age, 12 years old, that I was when my dad finally, after much begging, took me to see Batman uh, in 1989, just before it left theaters. It was in the cheap theaters by the time that we got to it. So, a uh, very striking memory for me, and uh, we just hadn't gotten around to it uh, by now. It wasn't, it wasn't like in, on purpose that I waited till he was the same age as me, but it just happened to work out that way. Uh, and so, I thought it would be interesting to watch it with him, which we did a few days ago, and then kind of get his reactions as, you know, a modern 12-year-old seeing this old Batman movie uh, with dated effects and all that kind of stuff. And just kind of see what he thought of it. So, uh, before we go any further, what would, what would you say are like your basic reactions to it? I mean, did you, did you generally like this thing? Or was Again. it... Yeah, okay, great, great. Um, which I, I wondered, I, I was like, are you, is, are, is he going to be bored? Is he not going to find this interesting? So let's talk about the story. And, you know, it's 1989's Batman. We're going to talk full-on spoilers here. So we're not going to hold anything back. We're going to say whatever we want about this movie. So, I mean, it came out a long time ago, so hopefully you all watched it. Yeah, and it's a classic, you know. It's like, uh, it... it um, Next to the to uh, Richard Donner's Superman in 1978, Batman is one of the most influential superhero movies because it took it took it seriously. It took it very seriously, especially compared to the Adam West Batman, which you've seen some clips of since watching the the '89 movie. But oh uh, yeah, uh, was I, go ahead. It, didn't Adam West come? From, that was the '60s, wasn't it? 1960s Adam West's Batman yeah. TV series. Yeah. But enough about the series. We yeah. talk about this movie here. That's right. So, was the story interesting to you? Yes, it was, actually. It was very interesting. Yeah? Um, and... 
Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. Were there any like boring parts? Like first, I want to hear like your the most boring parts, and then maybe the your some of your favorite parts. So were there any boring, boring. parts? Hmm. Sometimes it gets boring, but at but at these points, I mean, I know it's Batman, so I try to pay really close attention. So even when uh, Bruce Wayne isn't Batman, um, it's still quite interesting. Yeah, and and the the movie, I was noticing at the very beginning, there's lots of stuff going on with Gotham. You know, they're talking about this this state of crime, and there's there's organized crime stuff. You know, because Jack Napier doesn't become the Joker until at least I want to say twenty, maybe close to thirty minutes into the movie. I, I can't remember, but there's a while there where it's just kind of normal organized crime type stuff, and uh, there's that opening scene with Batman. But after that, we kind of don't see him for. Maybe a little while, well, until the creation of the Joker, you know, at Axis Chemicals. Um, so I was wondering if if uh, you were I getting like bored. It. I always like, for some reason, um, you know how they say Axis Chemicals in that movie. Yeah. I, I most oh, careful not to bump this. I almost always hear it, um, like in from other places, Ace Chemicals. Oh yeah, they they kind of changed the name of the chemical plant yeah. that uh, Joker was kind of born at uh, from movie to movie and comic to comic and stuff um so what were some of the coolest or the best parts that you thought the coolest or best parts so i was shocked um that was one of the best the one of the best parts was when Move i this. i want to make sure this isn't getting in your face one it was when i found out that joker had actually killed bruce wayne's parents but at the time, he was just a common criminal, like in the comics or whatever. Um, it's always just a comic, cr common criminal who kills his parents. And at the time, Jack was a common criminal, but not anymore. He's joking around now. Yeah, yeah. It's it. That's a big change from the comics. In the comics, the the man who killed uh, Bruce Wayne's parents was named Joe Chill. And he was just kind of an average street thug. I think he was caught up, maybe involved in some mob stuff. But, I mean, the whole point in the comics of it being just a normal killer and then that... Or a normal criminal. And then that criminal escaping Batman's justice. Like, he uh, was killed by somebody else before Bruce Wayne had a chance to get to him. Maybe maybe even before Bruce Wayne became Batman, you know. But, but um, he wasn't able to kind of get that... The satisfaction, quote-unquote, of revenge... And so that makes sense of Batman continuing and just going after criminals in general because he never got the satisfaction of uh, bringing his own parents' killer to justice or, or enacting vengeance on them or, or whatever. So there, was, um, there has been over the years a lot of uh, uh, dislike among fans that the Joker was made into the killer of Bruce Wayne's parents because then you've got this movie where, okay, Joker dies at the end of this movie, Batman kind of kills him in a sense um and so there's that that closure you know will, will why would batman continue you know they don't really establish why he would continue fighting crime as well but i mean i think it makes for a good one-shot movie it just doesn't uh create a good uh, uh platform for a franchise um okay so what did you think of the ending of the fact that joker died of the final fight um it was pretty intense yeah uh, yeah i'd just say it's pretty intense and you know how there was, like, at the end when you just see um, Joker's body just, like, grinning? Yeah, something? yeah. And he's on the ground, like, 
a little halfway pounded into the street. <laughs> yeah. And then um, you can just hear this repeated laughing over <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have no... Wait, was... What was that? What do you... It was, uh, it was a novelty item. It's like a little thing you would buy in a joke store or toy shop or gift shop called, like, a bag of laughs. Okay. So it was just a little toy that he had that was going off in his pocket. Huh. So, I feel like that has some sort of meaning or something. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what feeling we were meant to be left with if we if we were meant to believe that... You know, in some way, he was going to live on, or what? Well, you know, so it's it's an it was an interesting choice at the end there, but um, but um, I think I have a theory. Oh, okay. Um, Batman is going to get arrested for some reason or something for killing the Joker, and maybe he set off the toy just before he died, um, to like mocking the Batman. Yeah, that's interesting. It's it's funny that Batman is never really brought to justice for all the killing that he does in this movie. I, I was reminded, like, he sends the Batmobile in, and there's a bunch of thugs in Axis Chemicals when he blows it up. And we see the bombs drop out of the Batmobile, drop between their legs, and then, boom, there's a huge explosion. Batman just killed a bunch of thugs. Now, you could argue maybe he didn't do that knowingly, but I don't. I, I think that they would say, the filmmakers would say, no, this Batman kills. He just doesn't care, you know? Um, and I think, he, I mean, he knocked the guy off of the um, the bell tower, the, and he fell down and stuff like that. So there's, Batman's killing all over the place in this movie, and he does some of it in the in Batman Returns as well. So that was interesting. He was, um, he was scary, though. That's something that I noticed again in the first scene with the criminals on the rooftop remember when batman first appears yeah what did you think of that scene um remember the the, the criminals that had just stolen the wallet from the couple and what? they uh the criminals that had just at the beginning of the movie they robbed that couple in the alley yeah but they didn't kill them they just robbed them yeah and uh, then they were divvying up they were on the rooftop divvying up looking through the wallet and then batman shows up yeah you remember that scene now Yeah, that was cool yeah, I mean, I looked over and I saw, like, a wide-eyed grin on Asher's face. And I think what I was really liking about it, and, uh, you know, well, can you tell me what you liked about that scene? It's just, um, it's just on the point where um, a superhero appears. I'm just like, oh, no, you guys are in trouble. Yeah, yeah. and Because I, they're just street thugs. Yeah. They're nothing compared to Batman. yeah. And they were talking really tough. The one guy was like, Batman, whatever. And then by the end of that scene, <laughs> he is totally freaking out. Like, what are you? You know? And, uh, and I'm Batman. That's right. Iconic line. Um, and uh, and what, what I noticed in this movie that it's such a shame was not carried over into the movies that followed is how people reacted to Batman, both criminals and non-criminals when they saw him. Criminals were, you know, at the in the opening scene at least, were terrified of him, thought he was not human, and he goes to all this trouble to create the the the, the uh, impression that he is a supernatural being. You know, he's like he uses really thin cables, so it almost looks like he's flying when he swoops around. He uses the the smoke so that when he disappears, he kind of like 
you know, f uh, moves through the smoke and creates trails of smoke behind him as he disappears somewhere up above. And he's there one minute, people turn around and he's gone the next. And so there's a lot of the kind of supernatural mystique that he's creating for himself in this movie that really was not carried out over into Batman Returns and the, the, the other two Batman movies that followed in this particular Batman series. And I think that's to the detriment of the series big time. Um, it's really, it's great when Batman is scary and when even non-criminal are like, whoa, what is this? What am I looking at here, you know? And so that was really great for me uh, still in this movie. Um, let's see here. Uh, oh, yeah. What did you think of um, Vicki Vale as a character? Was she interesting to you? Was she... Vicki Vale? That's the love interest, the yeah. reporter, the photographer, I mean. The, yeah. Um, yeah, I think she... I think she would... I don't think... I think the story might have been pretty different if she was not in the movie. I think yeah. she plays a pretty big role. So. For sure. Yeah, she kind of represents us. She's learning about Batman as we are learning about Batman through her at the same time. But I think other than that, she is not really an interesting character to me. I, I don't really understand why Bruce Wayne would uniquely connect with her in particular compared to, you know, any number of other women, you know. And so I feel like she really served a purpose in the story of this movie, but in terms of her relationship to Bruce Wayne, I don't think she really brought anything very unique that was worth exploring further uh, in in the future movie. So it makes sense to me why she was not in the second movie. Um, I noticed the, the bat gadgets in this movie. What did you think of the bat gadgets? Well... Like the um... various things that he used... Well, there's definitely the Batarang. That yes. Um, you gotta have the Batarang. Yeah. I mean, who is Batman without a Batarang? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I noticed, like, um, some very convenient gadgets that... Uh, over the years, I've noticed a little bit more and more, but this time it really hit me hard. Um, like the when he's when he's racing through the city with the Batmobile and he needs to make a sharp turn, and he uses the grappling hook to grab onto like a lamp post, and that helps him navigate that really tight, fast turn, you know. And uh, we just wouldn't see something like that today. I could see that okay, maybe that would make sense that he would think ahead to have that in his vehicle so that he could make sharp turns. Okay, yeah, I, I can see that maybe. But then it gets a little bit weirder. He's got the Batwing, which conveniently has this little uh, kind of clip, uh, this, this little claw that comes out to grab all the balloons, and then it clamps shut on them. Um, and if you look at that second shot, they're all nicely divided up into little grooves for each cable. And then it pulls inward to cut all the cables off. And I'm just like... Why in the world would he build, take all the time to have that built or to build himself into the Batwing, you know, for just this kind of circumstance? It just seems a little too convenient. It seems like a little bit of a carryover, actually, of the uh, absurdly convenient gadgets that Batman had in the 60s series. And then finally, he had that one gadget that would, like, extend out of his palm to hit that guy in the crotch in the Belfry scene when he's doing all the flips and kicks, jumps in the air, and then two big spike things come out of his boots... And it's like, what ba what's Batman going to do? Well, you know, today he would just dodge in a movie. But this time he just stayed in place. This extension thing came out that could reach past the claws to his crotch and stop in midair and make him fall down. And again, I'm like, why would he have that in particular built into his suit? So the, the gadget seemed a little bit unrealistic and, and uh, convenient for me. Um, but still, still pretty cool. Still pretty cool. Yeah, and then there's also, um, you forgot about... The Batmobile's 
like self-protecting thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have never seen that happen before. Yeah, that was yeah. I, I remember that looking really cool uh, when I saw it in '89. It looks a you know a bit stop motion now. For some reason, when I saw it in '89, it looks smoother. I think it was a smoother stop motion than we had typically seen before that, which is maybe what made it look more real to me in in the late 80s but now i mean it still has evidence of being basically a stop motion kind of uh, effect rather than something digital they would just do it digitally now uh but anyway yeah but i can see him building shields you know into uh his car that that has you know multiple applications um so let's talk about the the cast a little bit and their performances what did you think of michael keaton as batman and as, and as bruce wayne um He's pretty good. He, yeah, I, I like him as a, as an, yeah, I, I think I enjoy him as an actor. Yeah. Yeah. As both uh, Bruce Wayne and as Batman. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely like his Batman. In hindsight, coming back to it, he plays kind of a weird Bruce Wayne. Um, which, you know, that makes sense to me with this being a Tim Burton film. He's going to look for every chance to have characters that are slightly darkly odd. And I think Bruce Wayne was certainly that. But from the comics, the Bruce Wayne persona is much more of a suave playboy, maybe sometimes a bit uh, carefree and absent-minded. Um, but this guy seemed almost a little kind of socially awkward, you know, uh, and maybe because they're playing up the fact that he's a bit of a recluse. And so this was a different, a different take on Bruce Wayne than we've typically seen in animation and comics and in other movies. Um, and I think Michael Keaton was a good fit for it. Uh, but it's not probably the Bruce Wayne interpretation that I would most be attracted to. What about Jack Nicholson as the Joker? All that, um... He makes the Joker kind of psycho. Yeah. In, in like, in what way do you mean psycho? Well, he's crazy. Yeah. He, um, he uses a pen to kill somebody by stabbing him in the neck. And yeah. And then he does it again with this burner on his hand. Yeah, the, the, the joy buzzer is like an electrocutor thing. Yeah, but that only electrocutes them in the... I remember in some other things, um, there is always that thing involved. Yes, I, I he uses in lots of other appearances of the Joker and stuff. Yeah, but it only like, it only like shocks someone and knocks them out or something. Yeah, and but he he literally killed someone. Yeah, he hung on and just let him fry ultimately because if you electrocute something long enough, it will start to burn, you know. And so he just let him burn. I remember that was the darkest, most disturbing scene of the movie when I was a kid. I was like, oh my gosh, this is intense, you know. Um, it was a very striking first PG-13 experience for me. And, you know, it doesn't look realistic now. It looks kind of, you know, uh, comic booky, as it were, but... Yeah, it, it's, I still... mean, it's just like a person glowing, and then and then you got a fake dummy. Yes, <laughs> then you put a dummy in there. Yeah, exactly. Um, but he was dark. Like, the Joker's dangerous in this movie. Um, he's and, and a, a bit scary, even, even yeah. while he's funny. I remember you telling me that in other, like, in comics, he was just, like, a joke-around sort of person. But in that movie, he actually proves that he is a super dangerous villain. Yeah, before the 80s and before Frank Miller's um, The Dark Knight Returns, 
the Joker was... There's no such thing as the Dark Knight Returns. Do you mean Batman Returns or the Dark Knight this Rises? Is, this is a comic book I'm talking about. Oh, the Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, oh, and there actually is an animated movie of it, which you might totally like. Okay. Um, but anyway, uh, before that story was written, the Joker was largely a harmless character. And uh, he really became, along with Batman, became very dangerous. And this movie was very inspired by the Dark Knight Returns. And so uh, I, I like the Joker to be dangerous and darkly funny. Um, I don't want him to be merely a harmless prankster. It's fine if he's that way sometimes, but I want him to unpredictably also become very scary, scarily dangerous, you know? And so I appreciated that. I felt like even though Nicholson was bombastic and stuff, I think there's something... I've grown to appreciate the idea of Joker being really skinny and just a little bit more nimble. And Jack Nicholson is just not as nimble and dexterous with his body. He's not as in control uh, with his of his body, you know. You know, there is this one thing I just wanted to add in. Um, the Joker never always in um in other comics. I don't. Um, did the Joker really always have that stupid grin, just like... It's not necessarily frozen on his face. That was kind of, I think, an invention of this movie, that, like, he got shot through the face so that they had to uh, surgically pinch his cheeks, and that creates the grin. The surgery looks a little too neat and tidy. I think the way they approach it in um, The Dark Knight is a little bit more, you know, realistic, uh, even though they're kind of using this, a similar kind of a premise. Um... But most of the time in the comics, he's insane. He's smiling because he's insane. And that's what I prefer. I prefer a Joker who is just almost always smiling because he's insane, you know, rather than him being stuck with this grin, but not necessarily, you know, crazy all the time or what. I don't know. It's it's a small aesthetic thing. But um, so, yeah, the the Joker is weird in this movie, and it's definitely a unique take on it. It's not my ultimate take. My ultimate take is probably going to be the um, Mark Hamill version of the Joker. I would love to see some kind of a live-action version of that. Not with Mark Hamill playing it, but uh, but like that kind of bonkers bombasticness, but also with the lethal nature, the dark, scary nature of the Nicholson and Heath Ledger versions of the Joker. Uh, anyway... So, let's see here. Uh, I think the Joker, as Nicholson played played him, is kind of like best experienced up close because of Nicholson's style as an actor. Uh, what did you think of Michael Goff as Alfred? Any thoughts about him? I, um, I like how he played him like a friendly guy. Yeah, he was very warm. Um, and, uh, and you could believe that he was kind of Bruce Wayne's only family. And so I was just kind of charmed again by Michael Goff's Alfred. Um, but the script... I think didn't allow me to feel his love for Bruce as deeply as Michael Caine's Alfred uh, in the the Dark Knight movies. I really felt like Michael Caine just loved, you know, I was going to say this boy, but, you know, in his mind, Bruce Wayne is a boy to him, is is like his boy. I mean, he really takes on the role of kind of a, a loving father figure in the, the Dark Knight movies, and, and I didn't feel that as much. Uh, Michael Goff was still, uh, you would think of him as like a relative, like an uncle that really cares about Bruce Wayne, but he wasn't as much of a father figure in this uh, in this movie as Michael Caine's Alfred. Uh, let's see here. Um, let's talk about the stunts and the action and the visuals and stuff. What did you think of uh, of the action scenes? Oh, yeah. Um, I think they did a lot 
better with. I think. Why don't they you did, come this way in case you're out of, out I of think, the camera? I think they did really good with the acrobatics. Really? Yeah. Like of the bad guys and stuff. Well, yeah, but Batman's pretty cool too. He's kind of, um, just swinging around and then. Um, That's right. It's just my phone. Um, it's uncut. We're gonna keep going. And then, um, I also like how you know how there's like in the final fight um there's this guy that just like flips over and over again like repeatedly before the before the fight between batman and him actually starts yes yeah yeah this one thug yeah Um, so you like that kind of those acrobatic flipping around and stuff yeah i think they did pretty well on that that's a little bit surprising to hear you say that uh i think that the bad guys definitely had like cool acrobatics and stuff but compared to like modern um action movies like the Marvel movies or like the Batman movies the Dark Knight trilogy which we'll show to you at some point in the future um there's like the 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 fight choreography is really pretty minimal i mean the matrix really changed fight choreography and the the expectations of fight choreography in movies and that was 10 that released 10 years after this one so this was still in a time where you could mostly just have guys doing some basic punches and kicks and some quick cuts to make it, you know, feel fast-paced and stuff, and call it a day, you know. And if, and now and then have a stunt guy come in, you could do lots of flips and stuff, you know. Uh, but it, it really does does not, as far as Batman's fight choreography himself, I don't think it holds up, you know, uh, nearly to you know what we would come to expect today. Um, what did you think of the Batmobile and the Batwing, his his uh, jet? Um. I think they kind of looked old style. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I think that uh, the Batwing in particular, when it in the crash sequence, oh man, could you? I don't know if you could tell, but like it, it's a model. It's all models, you know. And back then, I guess it, it it wasn't as obvious to me. But looking at it now, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a like a toy plane crashing in, in the middle of a very cool looking model, you know? Um, and so, yeah, they just didn't have digital effects, you know, to use to that extent back then. And so they went that, that route. So, uh, definitely, you know, looks dated, but, um, it didn't take me out of the experience too bad. You know, uh, I think that the visual design of the movie still helps it hold up in the ways that even the effects and stuff, you know, date the movie. Um, like you noticed the fake trees yeah. when the Batmobile was driving through the forest. Yeah, I those were like clear. Like clear fake trees. Yeah. Obviously fake. Obviously fake. And I you know, I noticed that too, but what I notice, you know, also is like the design of the trees and the the look and the feel and the vibe. And so I think that even noticing for me, even noticing when there's some fake things like that, sometimes if it's done for stylistic reasons to have more stylistic control over the visuals, I can appreciate what they're doing visually, stylistically, you know. Um, So what did you think of the score of the music? The music was pretty good. Yeah. Um, But... Sometimes um, it's still kind of old style. Um, it, it doesn't really. Sometimes I kind of notice it that it's not really as loud as the people talking, or maybe the music is louder. Or, I mean, the two volumes don't really um, aren't don't really match all the time. I of between dialogue and music. I, yeah, it's been a while. I can't the it the. Um, my memory's still kind of foggy, but, um, that's what I can remember. Okay. When it felt old style to you, I'm curious, was that when you heard the orchestra music type music playing, or more when it was like the 
pop music, like where, there, where there's a singer, you know, going along with it. Like when, remember when the Joker came into the museum and they had that pop music playing with a guy singing in the background? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that was kind of old style. Okay. Too. Did you? But did you also feel like the orchestra music stuff that felt old style too? Not as much as the pop music. Not as much as the pop music. Okay. All but right. it, but they're both still kind of old style. But the pop music is a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since it came off of radio, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. And there was a lot of Prince music, or the artist formerly known as Prince, you know, whatever he was at the time. No, I use Prince still at the time. Um, yeah, but uh, the I have no objectivity in in this realm. I've seen this movie way too many times, so I just accept the the Prince music. It's just kind of part of what it is for me. And then uh, the the orchestra music I accept as too. That theme is just embedded in my brain as something that I enjoy. However, I didn't like it when it returned in just the Justice League movie when they used that instead of like the Hans Zimmer stuff. You know, I'm like, no, no, I didn't want them to return to that. And I think it's because in a new movie context. What Elfman did back then was that old style of, like, superhero march music. And you just don't hear superhero marches anymore, you know, as themes in superhero movies. They go with something that's more subtle or that's just a little bit more sweeping and orchestral or something. Um, and so I can definitely see it being kind of dated. And Danny Elfman had a different style back then that was much more... It just had a more kind of like... A, um, simplistically rhythmic kind of uh, style to it. Um, okay, so let's talk about themes just briefly. There's not much. I don't think this movie uh, is going to really grab people with it, with themes to make them think about. Revenge is obviously a theme. There's a moment between Vicki Vale and Bruce Wayne where he says, you know, establishing why he needs to keep doing what he's doing, he says it's not a perfect world. And she says it doesn't have to be a perfect world. And so I think it may be calls to that feeling that we all have in us of just the bleakness and the corruption in this world and that's messed up and something needs to be done about it. But then there's also the attitude of, okay, it doesn't have to be perfect. And yeah, but do we really want to settle for that? Is that just something we tell ourselves because we don't, as humans, have a solution to fix uh, to fix all of it, you know? Um, so I think there's maybe some room to have a little bit of thought and conversation come out of this movie, but I think you really have to be looking for it. I mean, those themes would have been a bit striking for its time, maybe, again, if you're looking for them, but DC superhero movies like the Dark Knight trilogy and Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman go much deeper thematically and emotionally with that kind of thing. All right, so we're not going to hear my time-traveling thoughts this time because I have no objectivity when it comes to this movie. Of course, I'm glad that I saw it. Of course, of course, I would tell my 12-year-old self to see it, but let's go back in time and see what you would say to yourself. Okay. Okay. I'm in my brother's room, and, um, one second. Hey, I think you should watch it. It's kind of amazing, but it's kind of creepy, too, and it's kind of, um, old style, but I, I think you're going to enjoy it. Nice. Kind of old style, but you're going to enjoy it. It's kind of creepy, too. That's a little, that's, So it was a little bit creepy to you now and then. Yep. Okay. Um, rating, right? Yeah, on that note, we should talk about the rating... Um, it is PG-13 for violence, gore, frightening, and intense scenes, and some language. And that was a description that actually I wrote. The, the description following the PG-13 rating wasn't written out on IMDb, so I, they might phrase it differently. And of course, IMDb.com is a great resource uh, if you want to check out the blow-by-blow blow blow descriptions of all the content concerns that you might have before you consider showing it to, uh, to your kids, since every family's different. And, uh, uh, and so, yeah, imdb.com, great way to educate yourself. 
this is um, <clears throat> this is um, audio journal number five since the incident. I'm still pretty sure I've developed some kind of superpowers despite the negative results in the last four tests. Um, I'm going to give it another try today after a trip to the hardware store. This is invulnerability test number one. Healing factor. This is healing factor test number one. Bloodshot. The synopsis on IMDb reads, Ray Garrison, an elite soldier who was killed in battle, is brought back to life by an advanced technology that gives him the ability of superhuman strength and fast healing. Uh, I cut out a little bit of the descript- of the synopsis here because I- it does give a little spoiler. So this is the spoiler-free version that I- of IMDb's synopsis. With his new abilities, he goes after the man who killed his wife. He soon comes to learn that not everything he learns can be trusted. The true question is, can he even trust himself? All right, so let's talk about the story, basically, just kind of the vibe this thing gives off. What is this animal? Well, it's based on a valiant comic book property that uh, I'm not familiar with. I haven't read. I've seen images of the Bloodshot character before, but I've not read any of the comics. Uh, and I-, I think I might have even guessed from watching this if I'd never heard of the character that this was based on a comic book property because it's got that sci-fi action superhero vibe there's no costumes but there are a handful of characters with strong theme- th- uh, thematic uh, concepts like w- that are all uh, based around um, artificial augmentation of some kind so there's a guy with robotic legs uh, and like a harness with you know kind of almost spidery like arms that he can use there's a guy who's blind but has like a a harness with a bunch of cameras on it so he sees through all of those cameras. There's a a lady that uh, breathes through like a thing on her chest that makes her immune to all kinds of poisons or toxins or anything that would be bad for humans to breathe, you know. Uh, And then you've got the, the main character, Ray, or bloodshot, I guess maybe is what we should call him, uh, who has this healing ability and extra strength and stuff like that. So it it has that kind of comic book vibe in terms of the concepts of the characters involved. There are going. It also specifically has a. I don't want to say a Marvel movie vibe, but it's going for that. Uh, they're going for laughs with these comic relief characters. One in particular that you could just stamp comic relief on his forehead. Like every time he opens his mouth, it's like, oh, we're going to go for another joke here. Going to go for another joke, you know. And that all fell flat for me. Uh, plenty of action in this movie, but it totally lacked tension in the experience for me. The The character's main power is regeneration. And even faster regeneration than, say, Wolverine has. And though this power does have limits for him, those limits are never really felt by the hero. The hero never struggles with his limits, up to and including the climax, you know. And it is a hard power to deal with, you know, but I think there are ways that you can uh, make a hero that is completely invulnerable or that has these kinds of regeneration abilities. There are pl- there are limits that you can place on them, either related to that uh, power or related to something else, some other limitation that they have. Maybe it's an emotional limitation or something um, that, you know, you can place limitations on that kind of character and they just didn't do that 
really effectively at all for me. There were characters that were aware of his limitations, but the the hero himself never seemed aware or certainly not bothered or affected at all by uh, his limitations. So um, I, I just didn't feel any of the action, any of the intensity that I think I was supposed to feel. The most interesting facet of this whole movie is the the way the hero is being manipulated by others and i won't say more than that but it's it's um it's really an interesting concept that i wish would kind of continue if this movie continues into a franchise but i don't think that's going to be the case um it's and it's only conceptually interesting that's why I th- it's kind of it feels like a missed opportunity it's a really conceptually uh, interesting method of manipulation and uh but it it doesn't in the the execution provoke any emotion i don't really feel anything for this character as a result of the way he's being manipulated or to the extent that he's being manipulated the supporting characters i also thought had very little personality and are pretty simplistic i i imagine they would like to make sequels with this movie but i just can't imagine being excited or interested in them at all uh let's talk about the cast briefly vin diesel does grim and vengeful just fine but i thought there should have been more emotion in his reactions to a couple of events uh and i you know he's i i just don't know that he has the 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 range you know in what he can emote to really be up for that so it's understanding that they maybe didn't even shoot for it you know while they were filming the movie but uh i it felt like something that was missing. I really wanted to connect with his character on just a more human, relatable human level. And I just, I just didn't feel like I could do that. And that his performance wasn't helping uh, that in any way. There are two love interests for the hero and both have little to no personality and seem to be merely there to be stoic and beautiful and be someone that he's either potentially interested in or someone that he I guess deeply, deeply cares about, and so is driven to, you know, based on his his deep felt emotions for them. Uh, but again, I didn't, I wasn't feeling that myself in the the relationship and how it was executed in the interaction between the characters. And whether from the delivery, the script, or both, all of the comic relief relief character jokes just fell flat for me. But you know, just a little notice for those unfamiliar with my reviews, I have not laughed at most of the Marvel movies. So if you find yourself chuckling, at most Marvel movies, then you might get some chuckles out of this one too. Uh, but it just, you know, is another one of these movies that's going after a kind of humor that does not work at all for me. So talking about the stunts and visuals a bit, this really, this movie, if you watch the trailer, is really trying to sell itself, I think, based on the action and the visuals. And it has a lot of those things, but I didn't feel the stakes at all. And I need to, no matter how spectacular the action is, if I don't feel any emotional stakes, then I'm just bored and just kind of, and I'm more uh, apt to see the flaws and the shortcomings of the visual effects and stuff. Um, and worse yet, in this movie, the, specta- the most spectacular moments featured CGI character replacement that offered plastic-looking faces and animations, at least to my cursed eyes that seemed to be able to pick out CGI more than most other people. And they even dared to feature these CGI character replacements in a slow-motion shot that really exposed the faces and therefore the artificiality of the whole thing to me. So, I mean, it's gotten better. It's gotten better since, you know, The Matrix Reloaded and, uh, you know, the the original Spider-Man trilogy with uh, uh, Tobey Maguire. But that's not saying a ton. (laughs) It's not saying much at all, I don't think. Um, 
Uh, as far as themes, um, there are some themes of having control over one's choices and one's own aspirations compared to, say, being controlled by or subject to others, but it's handled too broadly to, I think, be saying anything in particular. Is it talking about a person's relationship to their parents, to their government, to God? Uh, you know, what what do they have in mind? I, I don't think they maybe have anything specific in mind, that you know, any kind of specific message or any kind of parallel in the real world to the... Uh, the controlling the controllers and the manipulators you know that are uh in this movie um it's not a movie that i think will trigger any worthwhile thoughts or conversation on real life issues for almost every viewer um all right so i have no idea what your tastes are in movies but if i were a time traveler i'd go back in time and say pater oh man skip this one the trailer does look intriguing and enticing because of all the sci-fi concepts that are on display uh, but it's um it's just not going to execute on those things for you in a way that is interesting or emotionally involving if a sequel gets made with intriguing trailers for that one in look specifically to see if they are intriguing potentially emotionally because you don't need another one of these you need something different to shake up this series and get you connected to it if there's a trailer for a sequel that makes you think that'll be the case with the sequel then you know Watch this one cheaply or free if you can to get caught up on the origin story of the character uh, so that you can potentially enjoy the sequel. But as it is, this was a, a substanceless, emotionally detached experience that you will very quickly forget. You can get my spoiler-filled reactions to Bloodshot today in my spoiler car video series, just one of many perks available for your support at patreon.com slash Productions. This one has an MPAA rating of... PG-13 for intense sequences of violence, some suggestive material, and language. Incoming transmission. This week I heard uh, via email from Gabriel Stinson who wrote, I agree with you on Baldur's Gate 3. I was interested until I saw the gameplay reveal. If you can grind, my mind may change. But I want so much to like the Divinity Original Sin games. But without the ability to grind... Oh, sorry, I added a but. There wasn't in there. I want so much to like the uh, Divinity Original Sin games. But without the ability to grind, I'm out. I like the tactical turn-based combat. But it just seems like normal is way too punishing. You can be less than two hours in the game and get your butt handed to you. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a real shame. I mean, sometimes... Uh, I, I know that companies only have so much development time that they can give but sometimes i wish that even companies like that were doing they're doing the dark souls style games or these really you know hard games for a specific audience would create a lower difficulty that's maybe not very well tested it's you know easier and stuff but you know it's not like maybe the quality control isn't quite as high <laughs> you know and then they just clearly label the difficulties with you know hey this uh, is the intended experience, which, you know, other, um, you know, many games will do that. They'll say, you know, of one difficulty level, the intended experience or whatever, you know. And so I feel like if they put, as long as they put like a certain difficulty is the intended experience, um, and even more so if they'd be willing on the easier difficulties to say, um, you know, not the intended experience, but easier but but the you know but more accessible to uh players who prefer a different style you know um be as clear as you want give all the caveats you want but give us some other options in our games and uh 
you know, I don't know what they would do in particular with the Divinity Original Sin games to make them more accessible if they're, you know, because I would respawning, having enemies respawn so that you can grind seems like a big pain. But, you know, this goes back to cheats and how I wish game companies would just give you the option to cheat. Sure, disable trophies or whatever, but give you the option to cheat. I mean, like the Neverwinter Nights games on PC are some of my favorite that's some of my favorite RPG experiences, you know, and you couldn't in most user-made campaigns, and I think even in the ones that were made officially, you couldn't grind for experience, but if you were finding it too difficult or just wanted a slightly less tactical experience, you could just open up the console commands and select level up for your character, you know, and I would do that every once in a while, I'd be like, ah, it's getting a little too intense, or oh, I died here, I don't really want to spend any more time thinking about this fight and how I need to get through it, let's just level up boost all my stuff a little bit, go at it again. Okay, there we go. And whenever I would hit a little wall like that, I would just reload my save, level up, and then move forward. And I usually stayed in the sweet spot that I wanted to be in, where I wasn't invincible. I did have to do a little bit of thinking, but it wasn't, you know, the more intense tactical experience that maybe was intended by the by the developers. And so I wish they would just give people more choice because they win. If gamers have more choice, they win if games are more accessible to more people that maybe aren't necessarily part of their true blue audience. They could have what I call bonus customers, you know, who don't care about trophies or whatever the crap. They would gladly disable trophies so they could just have a cool experience with a game, you know. Um, So I'm hopeful that since Wizards of the Coast is involved, even though now Larian Studios is a very highly respected studio uh, because of the Divinity Original Sin games, hopefully, uh, hopefully Wizards of the Coast, you know, it's their property, and hopefully they have in mind, you know, yes, we want Larian to make this awesome game, but hopefully they feel the right to say, you know what, Larian... Um, we would like this to be more accessible to other people than maybe the Divinity Original Sin games have been. And so we'd like there to be difficulty options or other conceits in the design of this game so that a broader audience, you know, could enjoy it, you know. Now, who knows what went on in the negotiations behind the scenes? Because historically, if you watch the documentary that I recommended for the Summer of Free last year about the making of Divinity Original Sin... They talk about how their big Achilles heel before the Divinity Original Sin games was working for making games for other people who had deadlines, who had demands. And so they couldn't, they had to rush their games out so many times and they weren't able to, and so they were crappy games or games that had serious drawbacks, you know. And so their big thing was we want to make games in a scenario where we are subject to no one and we can just make the games we want to make. And so it was in that mode that they made these big, hugely successful PC games that also had a lot of success on consoles. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Larian in the negotiation room with uh, Wizards of the Coast said, listen, you need to know that we made those games, they were successful. The reason you want us to work with you now um, is because of these games and these games worked and were successful because we didn't have publishers making demands, you know? And so I can imagine a scenario where in the negotiation room, um, wizards of the coast would feel like they had to back off and didn't have the clout or the leverage to say, we want to make some changes, you know? Um, so far what I'm seeing is it looks like this is totally divinity, original sin, rinse and repeat with a D and D skin put on top of it. And that is not going to be, an experience that I'll enjoy if that's the case. But, you know, 
adding a True Blue easy difficulty since they don't seem to know, you know, when, when they put story mode, hmm, no. That's still plenty tactical in Divinity Original Sin 1. I can't speak for 2 because I don't, you know, I didn't, after my experience with 1, I don't trust them enough to truly know what a story mode experience should be for me to just be in it for the story, you know. They still required a lot of, of tactics and thinking and to do things of seemingly a very specific way. So... Uh, yeah, I have, I have serious doubts and reservations about this, but I'm hoping that more will come to the surface as we get closer to the release of that game in terms of previews and other press, you know, uh, revelations that, that come to the light of day that will indicate, no, this is, here are the ways it's going to be different from our last two games. Here's just the, here, here are the ways it's going to be more accessible to a wide variety of fans who really are interested in having, uh, you know, a D&D RPG experience on, on, uh, PC, and console. Come on, it's coming to console, but I already talked about that last time. Okay, moving along. I, I didn't, uh, if you've emailed me, um, I have not uh, seen it yet because I've been off grid all this week. Uh, that's uh, part of the way I'm able to take half days and spend half days with my boys during spring break is by not checking my emails or social media and stuff like that. So uh, I apologize um, and I will look forward to getting caught up on all my messages uh, at the beginning of uh, this coming week. But uh, that's that email, Gabriel got that email in before I went off grid, and so I added it to the script. But uh, anyway, look forward to catching up with anything else you guys might have sent my way. In the meantime, as a reminder, feedback, feedback, give me your thoughts. Strike up some chat on our forums at christiangeekcentral.com, leave a comment at youtube.com slash christiangeekcentral, or patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions. You type it, I read it, and might even share it on the show, unless you tell me not to or want to be anonymous, that's fine too. You can also email me a text or audio message at p-a-e-t-e-r at spiritblade.com. Would love to hear from you anytime and most anyway. And if you would like some help finding a good church in your area, I want to help you do that if I can. Online resources and communities are a good supplement, but by nature they can't speak to your particular situation like relationships in a local church can. The context for almost everything in the New Testament assumes that we are serving and building purposeful relationships relationships in a local church. So whether you're in a church that lacks Bible-based intentionality or not attending any church at all, if I can help you get connected to an authentic, compassionate, Bible-oriented church, I want to do that. You can email me at p-a-e-t-e-r at spiritblade.com and we can at least try to look at some websites of churches in your area together. And now for my Geek Week, what I've done, what I've got planned, um, this week was surprisingly about fantasy board games. I think that was helped along a little bit by watching Mythica uh, with uh, my oldest son, Asher, uh, who was probably maybe a little bit more in the mood for, you know, fantasy board gaming after that. But uh, even before that, the last uh, weekend, I think, is when my youngest son, Titus, and I started playing HeroQuest. He's been taking me through, after I took him through all the base set quests, which are like 12 or 13 of those, he wanted to be the, the game master, Zargon. And has taken me through now uh, the entire expansion of Keller's Keep. And uh, that that was such a super cool experience. I have been away from that game for long enough that like, I honestly couldn't see what was coming. And so there were some great surprises for me. And uh, he's just really taken to that role. And he enjoys giving me surprises, you know, enjoys delivering on those surprises and seeing the look on my face. And and so I'll play up my reactions just a little bit because I know he enjoys it. But uh, yeah, it's such a it's such a cool place to be in. Um, 
I, I think that like, you know, he's nine years old. And so tactically, he's not presenting me with a challenge, you know, the way he's moving. But, you know, that that game can only present so much challenge once you know, kind of like basically how to play safely and conservatively. It's hard to create a challenge, even if you have two seasoned gamers sitting down to play that one, you know, which is why I think it it uh, kind of starts to lose its appeal once all players involved, you know, have uh, have played through maybe all the base games and and a number of you know maybe your own quests that you've made over the years. But he does want to uh, later today play one of mine. He heard that I'd made a bunch of quests uh, to play with my friend uh, Mark, who I mention now and then. I go out and visit to see him uh, see him once or twice a year, and we have these big board game marathons and. I played Hero Quest with him for years. That's the longest I think the well, I don't know maybe maybe we did play Descent for an equal amount of time, but adult life goes by so much faster than like, you know, teenage and early 20s life. <laughs> so, uh but yeah, he wants to play one of the quests that I made. So I'm going to be Zargon again uh probably later later today or tomorrow and uh, looking forward to that. Um and then yeah, then we'll get into Return of the Witch Lord uh after that that he'll go back to being Zargon for. So Definitely looking forward to that and enjoying my time with that. What a, just a gift, just a gift. And speaking of which, Asher, uh, my oldest son, who helped me review a couple of movies this week, has been playing Descent with me. I've been uh, the Overlord, which is like Zargon, the Game Master kind of guy. And, uh, but, but specifically, you know, we've been trying to figure out a way to, um, to find a, well, he really likes Dungeons and Dragons when I've run that for him in the past. And I've enjoyed that too, but it just takes too much prep for me to realistically be able to bring that up and, and say, you know, hey, you know, do you, you want to do this? You know, even once a month would be a bit much because even just to use a random dungeon generator and go through that process, you know, leveraging all the tools I possibly can, it still involves too much prep for me that, you know, more prep than I want to give. I, I, I did like, gosh, about an hour and a half of prep. Um, before realizing I've got an hour and a half more and I was like, I, I'm not ready for this. I, I don't want to do this. Like we got to find something else. And so what I proposed to him was that we play either hero quest or descent, uh, journeys in the descent journeys in the dark first edition. It's long since been out of print and I have all the expansions except for, uh, one of the campaign expansions, sea of blood, which I sold. Cause I think it was just broken a ton. Um, but anyway, I've got like tons of stuff for that game. And I suggested adding some role-playing rules to it, basically to make charisma checks, because he really likes the role-playing aspect. Titus doesn't like those. He likes just the miniatures, and, you know, he's very, very likes the tactile visual element, whereas Asher is content to do without a lot of that, and really it be about his imagination, and he really likes role-playing. He likes... Um, you know, talking to the bad guys as he's fighting and quipping and stuff like that and interacting with the people in the town and stuff and, and like role-playing those scenarios out. And that wasn't appealing to me because there there were no gameplay mechanics to support it when we were playing, you know, HeroQuest and he would want to do that. Um, and so it just felt like it was bogging down what the game was, you know. And for me, I think I just needed some kind of mechanics, some kind of, you know, some kind of dice roll involved <laughs> so that it stays a game and it doesn't just purely div- divert into pretend time, you know. Um 
And so uh, I came up with just some basic charisma rules based on the skills that they have. Like in Descent, you have traits and uh, uh, your dice traits that you have extra dice that you roll if you're doing whether it's a melee attack or a ranged attack or a magic attack. And then you have like skills that use a certain number of skills you start with in melee ranged, um, which is also also called subterfuge. Is that uh, and it's more that thiefy, clever thiefy kind of thing. And then magic. And so I basically used uh, those values to come up with a number that would basically be your charisma score. Uh, and that would be what you add to rolls to make checks, you know, to, uh, to uh, maybe get a discount on um, your, uh, what do you call it, on, um, you, 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 when you're buying something at the shop. You get 25 coins off. Or maybe if you try to use charisma to intimidate or persuade a monster, then you can get one monster to kind of lose their turn the next turn. And that costs you, you know, an action on your turn. And so, uh, you know, there, there is a little bit of sacrifice involved. But at the same time, I totally recognize that it's not balanced in a way that, like, equally gives some advantage to the Overlord, you know. But as I'm playing with Asher... I'm even more leaning into the mentality of a game master, not an opposing player. And um, HeroQuest and especially Descent are designed more with an adversarial kind of role in mind. I think HeroQuest is balanced in favor of the heroes, and in Descent, it's much more of an even balance. Like, this could go either way, you know. And so... uh, I think that I'm well. Maybe no. I, I take that back. I think descent is uh, balanced a little bit in favor of the heroes, but less so than uh, than hero quest. And uh, and so I, and I'm content to lean more in that direction. You know, to give advantages to uh, the heroes, especially when you know I'm playing against a 12 year old who's never played this game before. You know, so there are various other little rules that, like for example. You're not supposed to use the invulnerability potions in the advanced campaign. That's a thing that came with one of the expansions, but it, I think it was going to be too overpowered f- for the heroes in the with the rules tweaks they made to the uh, campaign version. But I'm like, well, screw that. I, you know, I'm happy to give him you know crazy advantages peppered all over the place. And and another thing he wanted to do was to craft. And so I came up with the idea that like every time you find a treasure pile or a treasure chest, you roll a six-sided die. And on a six, when you find a treasure pile, or on a five or six, when you open a treasure chest, uh, you also find a component. And so I have these glass beads that uh, that we use to keep track of components that they find as they're searching for treasure. And once they have six components, or five if you're a dwarf, then you can use that at the shop to craft um, one of the items that's available in the shop instead of buying it, you know. And so essentially, it's it's a little bit like I'm just giving them a little bit more money to work with, you know. But it's it's in the guise of this mechanic for crafting and finding components and stuff like that. And so uh, I just found that there were some simple things I could do. I spent maybe 30 to 45 minutes thinking these things up and figuring out how they would be executed in the game. And, uh, and it's, and that was enough, you know, a charisma system, a charisma system to interact with the monsters. If you want charisma system to interact with townspeople and stuff, if you want, um, and those things could have meaningful effects on the gameplay, 
mechanics, you know, just with the, just a, the addition of very, some very simple dice rolling, you know. And so that got off to that got off to a great start. I was a little f- uh, concerned at first because there's a lot going on in Descent compared to Hero Quest to begin with. And then if you're talking about playing that in the campaign mode of uh, the Road to Legend campaign mode, it adds more stuff to think about. And I was so uh, I don't want to say surprised, but I was very pleased and a little surprised at him at how he took to all these rules and just kind of taking them in and there's still a lot to keep track of so much so that he's clearly not you know uh playing as uh well as he could because he's forgetting you know that he has this equipment or this item or whatever and to factor these things in and so i'm helping remind him of those things but it's off to such a great start he's picking up on the, the core mechanics of the game really quick and so as I record this, we still have like a folding table set up in my office with uh, the game uh, put out there. He's in his first dungeon and and it's great. It's great. And it's it's cool for me, too, because, you know, even though I'm playing the Overlord again, even though I have played this game to death over the years and really got burned out on it and was content to be done with it, you know, with my friend Mark, um, I'm playing with my son, which, of course, makes a significant difference. But... It's more of a roleplay experience, and and Mark wasn't necessarily into me going off on description and setting mood and stuff. I did more of that in Hero Quest, you know, when we were in high school and and college years. But uh, I kind of, you know, once we got into Descent, I I think I had a lot more on my plate to think about, and so I just wasn't thinking about those thematic, you know, game master uh, scene description type things, you know. So to be doing that now for the first time in Descent is fun. Uh, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying giving flavor and and comments and role-playing, you know, a few lines here and there from the bad guys he's fighting and role-playing interactions with the town mayor and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, that's been having a good time with that. Um, You know, I think all of this also kind of got me jazzed about board games again and tabletop games, you know, in general. Um, I've continued to really be enjoying the Pathfinder Adventure card game Mummy's Mask expansion. Um, and I've got, uh, another weekend with my friend Mark coming up in uh, April, the week after, or the weekend after my birthday. And, uh, and he texted me, we were talking about, you know, like whether or not we want to try a new game. He was asking me if I had any new games, like, no, not really. You know, I was thinking maybe we could do this. I'm, bu- I've, I'm, I bought another expansion set for Pathfinder planning on probably buying another one. And so he's like, yeah, cool. We can do one of those. But just that topic got me thinking, oh, but is there something else out there? I haven't done a real search in a while. Um, on, you know, and we really like dungeon crawlers. So I did this big search that lasted like three nights. I did, I haven't played video games since like last Sunday, I want to say, you know, my free time in the evenings after the boys go to bed has been about the search about, you know, the, the search for, you know, a, uh, a new tabletop dungeon crawl, you know, that's not an RPG that, that ideally doesn't require a game master, but you know, it can use one, you know, uh, if, if it needs to, as long as I don't got to do prep, like a, you know, proper RPG. Um, and so I was really digging deep into this game that's, uh, approaching mass production right now. I think things might've slowed down some because of the coronavirus, uh, but, uh, it's called Dungeon Crusade Book One Genesis of Evil if you want to check it out. And for a little while there, I was so absorbed checking it out. I was like, oh my gosh, this might be everything I've ever wanted in a tabletop dungeon crawl. I mean, it's describes itself as an open world, uh, fantasy dungeon crawl experience. There's crafting and of course, looting and, 
there, it, there's so much randomization, so it's like never the same twice, and uh, yeah, there's just a ton of cool systems that don't seem terribly complex. You know, they seem pretty straightforward, and they keep the gameplay going, and that's such a a hard you know target to hit in game design. And uh, uh, the board, I was like, oh, it's a little more colorful than I want. Um, but I, I was ready to forgive that when I saw just how much this game was doing and uh, I was like wow this is this looks really really cool and ultimately I realized it's not the game for me for two reasons one the combat uh, as I dug into you know uh, developer videos about how it plays out it's um almost definitely requires an app it, I mean it well it doesn't you you can play it without the app but when I saw the app in use I was like oh man without this app there'd be a ton of card shuffling going on every time there's combat and it would just be really um cumbersome in terms of what you need to do unlike many other systems that are in the game which really seem to flow pretty pretty quickly and easily uh, but man if combat is a big laborious thing without an app and I do not want to use an app um, then, you know, that's, that's a significant count against this game. Maybe I could adjust to the app. Maybe, maybe, you know, and I, and I was open to that, but as I started seeing more and more of the game, I started seeing how systems focused it was and how it was a little bit abstract when it came to the, attaching the theme to the systems. Um, you know, for example, and I had this problem with Gloomhaven too, uh, for example, when you're moving your character on the dungeon board, you can come across a room that has a door, a three-dimensional door uh, piece that you, that you put down and place on that room. And it can have, because of random, you know, uh, dungeon layout generation, it can have a tile in it that labels it as a secret room. And so you have to see if you can discover whether or not the room is there. And I'm like, why is the door on the board? Uh, why are you putting the door on the board if it's a secret room that I might not discover is there? Clearly, I see a door. It's right there on the board. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and there are, you know, just other little things that I was noticing. Oh, it's an interesting system, but the way it's playing out on the board is kind of abstract, you know? And so it was... You know, but that said, other elements of theme they really paid great attention to. Like there are so many different cards that you can find that describe events that take place, and each one of those events has its own unique art to go along with it. And the art on the cards looks great. You know, so there were a lot of things that were really working for me. But ultimately, the way the the way the moment to moment gameplay uh, worked out, there was just too many systems in the game that I didn't feel. Uh, synced up with the theme they were supposed to be representing well and so i ended up passing on that one and continuing my search um i did take another look at uh, wrath of the righteous the pathfinder adventure card game wrath of the righteous uh base set and there's a good chance i'll be uh, getting that uh what i ended up doing ultimately which i, I was going to do anyway um is purchase the rest of the uh adventure decks for the mummy's mask i have the first one but i need to get all the rest of them and so i purchased all the rest of them because they're getting a little harder to to purchase especially if you want to purchase them separately i actually had to purchase a whole lot that amazon is offering you know all of them bundled together having already owned one of them and so i'm going to take one you know that that's a duplicate you know and take it to my uh, local uh, bookstore and uh, and and sell it there and see if i can get you know a few bucks cash and and that'll offset that a little bit um 
But anyway, yeah, so I'm planning on continuing in The Mummy's Mask and having a great time, even with the rules that I've kind of, uh, some of them that I've been setting aside. Um, and let's see here. Sword and Sorcery Immortal Souls. That's one that I'm considering giving another try. It's uh, one of the big things that I, one of the big issues I had, with which I talk about in my playthrough series, the video series, if you want to watch that on uh, youtube.com slash christiangeekcentral, is that the enemy variety is sorely lacking, especially in that first set. And I peeked ahead and looked at all the adventures and the, the enemy layouts in that, and I was like, yeah, I'm just not pleased with this. Um, what I think helps some to make up for it is the AI, um, which makes those creatures very unpredictable and their abilities, there are different variations of like, say, a bandit. There's a green, red, and blue bandit, and each of them is going to have different AI type activities. One of them is going to use a healing potion, you know, when they start to get hurt, but another one won't. He's going to focus on, you know, maybe a poison attack of some kind, you know. And so there are variations in their behavior, but, you know, it's pretty much just a a different copy of the creature of the same enemy that's a different color. Yes, the mod- this is odd to me. The models are a little bit different in those variations. I'm like, why didn't you just name it something different and give it a different look, you know, instead of like having another variation of Gremlin uh, that you make a new model for, uh, why not just make an orc instead, you know, and just give me some variety, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, I think I can get over that. In fact, I, I realized that I could, when I last stopped playing that on my own, it was because the rules just got to be too cumbersome. There was just too much going on. I think, um, especially for maybe a solo player, there was just a little bit too much going on. You can split it up a little more easily when you have another person helping you out. And But the last time I played it with my friend Mark, it was still cumbersome. And there were rules issues where the, the rule book, the layout is, you know hard to find the rules that you want to find to get clarification on and it's not always clear because it's translated from another language and every once in a while there'll be just a little word missing here and there a little transition trend uh, transitional word in a sentence that's missing and I'm like and so I'm second guessing myself sometimes like is this missing a word or am I reading this right and just not quite understanding what the rule is getting at you know and so uh, there were enough times where Mark and I would be like I think the rule means this. And he'd be like, mm, no, I think it means this because this and this. And and even though we're playing cooperatively, I didn't like getting bogged down in debating, you know, the interpretation of a rule, you know. And so whether it was with Mark or by myself, you know, I was just like having enough reasons to set it aside and just shelve it for the foreseeable future. But as I got back into, you know, um, playing pathfinder again recently in you know the last few weeks and then especially this week you know when i had some extra time i was like you know maybe i am you know uh i should give this one another try you know uh part of me was thinking well i don't know at the end of a work day i don't have the brain power to really you know force myself through a bunch of rules and stuff but i don't know maybe that was just a season of life Maybe I was just, you know, getting, you know, a little tired of the board game experience itself, not necessarily getting tired of that specific board game. Because I don't think after I finished it and shelved it that I got out some other game that I played for a long, long time. I mean, I might have played Pathfinder. I think I did maybe get out Pathfinder and and set it up and and was into it for, you know, a a couple days, but no more than that. Um, So, gosh, maybe it's... That's what I'm wondering. Is it just a state of mind or a mental state or, you know, an energy level that I have right now that I didn't before? And so I just feel like, okay, if I'm going to buy another game, which is still a possibility, um, I need to at least close the book on 
Sword and Sorcery Immortal Souls. Similar to the mindset I had with video games over the starting over Christmas Vacation, where I was like, I need to start mainlining these games until I'm de- definitively sure that I'm done with it or want to continue with it. So that's my project for this coming weekend is to get back into, to finish up the, the dungeon I'm crawling in uh, Pathfinder and then set that aside, clear space, put out Sword and Sorcery Immortal Souls and really give myself to pushing through the clunkiness or whatever and getting familiar enough with the game to see if I can enjoy that experience once I am actually familiar and comfortable with the rules. To really push through and get to know those rules and become comfortable with it and see if if then I can really uh, enjoy the experience. Because if so, there are several expansions available for it that are not terribly expensive. And there's one coming out uh, that's uh, that's going to take place hundreds of years before the events of the game I currently have, but in the same universe, very similar systems, that has a ton more monster variety and stuff. And so I'm like, oh man... Yeah, I want to buy that. That looks much more appealing. But I was like, no, Pater, you can't do that until you are sure that you can learn to really enjoy this rule system. Just having a larger variety of monsters isn't going to fix it if it's still, you know, a detriment to it, how you know clunky it is. So that's my mission this weekend. Um, I also considered Folklore the Affliction one more time. And uh, ultimately, I don't think that's going to be the game for us. It's... Uh, it's uh, it's not a dungeon crawler, truly. It's more of an overworld adventure game that now and then will have you in these combat encounters. But it's not really a dungeon crawler. There's a lot aesthetically alike about it. Um, and you can check that one out. It's, it's, it's a fantasy game, but kind of like a gothic fantasy, you know, gothic horror fantasy adventure game, you know. Um, and it does have some really cool stuff going for it. But I think especially with my friend Mark, it would just be a lot of me reading things to him in between combat encounters and stuff like that. It's, I don't know. I think it's going to work better as a solo game. Uh, than a than a two player game, and right now I'm prioritizing looking for a potentially new two player game. Uh, I think we'll have a great time over the weekend if we just continue with a different base set of Pathfinder, the adventure card game. Um, but I am prior to prioritizing right now. Uh, you know, if I am going to buy a new game, getting that because I am totally content as it is to keep going with uh, Pathfinder, the adventure card game. So if I can, you know, play Sword and Sorcery Immortal Souls this weekend, really get comfortable with the rules, then I would feel like, okay, I could bring that to Mark and uh, we would probably have less, you know, moments where the game freezes up because of indecision about rules because I would have in advance gained uh, a a real familiarity with the rules. So I'm giving myself this weekend to figure out if that's going to be possible or not. And then also next weekend is when I'm going to finalize my wish list for Holly. I thought I was going to do that uh, this week, but uh, uh, I'm I'm pushing it off. I think I can push it off. My birthday's not till uh, April, so I don't think she... I mean, she hasn't been asking me for it yet, but... You know, I think by next week she might. So anyway, uh, that's where I, yeah. So Folklore Affliction, that's a maybe solo game for Pater sometime way down the line, but way down the line. Um, and then I'm also, I, I also downloaded uh, some campaign rules for Mage Knight so that you can continue your progress from one game to the next. I don't know that they're very, I, I didn't like them very much, but I, I might still play around with, you know, uh, either using some user-made campaign rules or coming up with my own or some combination of the two because I love Mage Knight and uh, it's not quite one that I want to play by myself right now 
uh, but I might want to on that trip with Mark, but he really, really prefers campaign games that, you know, your some element of your progress carries over from one game session to the next. So, uh, yeah, I'm giving some thought to that, giving some thought to that. But anyway, yeah, my, I'm been huge into, uh, board games right now and, uh, enjoying, been enjoying my time with my boys, looking forward to enjoying a couple days more of gaming with them. And that's about it. That is my geek week. That's it for this week. Oh my gosh, such a hugely long podcast. I hope I'm able to upload it. If uh, if for some reason it's split into two parts, then that's why. Sorry. Uh, stay tuned after the credits for B5 Shawarma with Adam David Collings, commenting episode by episode on one of his favorite sci-fi shows, Babylon 5. Or you can jump back to episode 575 if you want to start at the beginning. As a reminder, you can find episodes 0 through 500 of this podcast archived as the Spirit Blade Underground podcast at spiritblade.com. Next week, if God allows it, I'll be reviewing the animated movie Superman Red Sun. Looking forward to that. Very curious. I've not read the comic it's based on, but it's a very uh, influential one or very striking one in many people's minds. So uh, I'm I'm game for some version of uh, a story that lots of people have been celebrating over the years. Then also, I plan to review a movie called Abigail. This is uh, a foreign film that may have a mix of English-speaking and other languages. I'm not sure... I hope that if it has bad dubbing, it will allow me to select the original language track and subtitles. Um, you might th- you might be thinking, well, Peter, why are you, what are you even bothering with this for? Um, because I, especially since this is a detail you don't know, I wasn't able to rent it. It's not coming to Redbox uh, next week. Uh, it's not going to be on any streaming services that I know of next week. And so I just risked the purchase and bought the Blu-ray based on the trailer. If you check out the trailer for Abigail. Uh, it's a really, just the visual look of this fantasy world. It's kind of a steampunk fantasy vibe with magic and stuff. And I'm like, dang, this looks visually like a world I want to sit down and watch for at least an hour and a half, you know? Um, and hopefully the story's good too and the acting's good too. But uh, check out the trailer for Abigail and maybe you'll see what I mean. But I plan on, uh, it, my copy should be arriving on release day or soon after, so I should be able to have a review for that on the YouTube channel and on this podcast next week. I might watch the premiere of a show called Motherland Fort Salem. I think it's coming to uh, Hulu, I'm not sure, so I might get a, uh, a a free trial or something to check that out it's you know about uh, kind of like witches and stuff like that i don't know uh, but but a quiet place part two is going to be out next friday so actually i might skip motherland fort salem especially with the abigail review i'm going to have plenty of stuff going on in next week's episode so those are the plans anyway we'll see what happens till then please consider supporting the work of christian geek central and spirit blade productions and earning some fun rewards by becoming a spirit blade insider of any subscription tier at patreon.com slash spirit blade productions i'd also be grateful for positive reviews wherever you find this podcast thank you guys so much for making time for this show i hope you have a great week and that you'll join me next time here on the christian geek central podcast as we continue to geek out and seek the truth Gosh, yeah, I was going to add, I was like, should I want to goof around? Do I want to do some funny thing at the end here? No, no, this podcast is going to be way too long as it is. The Christian Geek Central Podcast is a community-supported endeavor of Spirit Blade Productions. This podcast is produced by Peter Fremson with support from the Christian Geek Central community at christiangeekcentral.com. For information about the latest entertainment and resources from Spirit Blade Productions, visit spiritblade.com. Thank you for listening.
hold it all back the way that it was. Nothing's the same anymore. Why do I still have to remind myself that she's Why gone? don't you eliminate the entire non-homeworld? Stand between the darkness and the light. Declaring martial law. Tell my own government wants to kill me. Get off their encounter-suited butts and do something. Any crew that executes an order like that is guilty of war crimes. Being a freedom fighter is a wonderful thing. But the pay sucks. Oh, we're screwed. Now get the hell out of our galaxy! And that was A Voice in the Wilderness, Part 1. The description on the Lurker's Guide reads, Seismic activity on the planet near the station uncovers what may be the signs of an extinct alien civilization. An old mentor pays a visit to Ambassador Delenn. The unrest on the Mars colony intensifies. This episode first aired on the 27th of July, 1994. Now, the pilot episode, The Gathering, was doing very well on home video sales in other countries. So the network asked JMS for a two-parter that could be distributed on video as a movie. And that's actually how I saw this episode. Now, there's a lot going on in this two-parter. So the, the story opens, we see a Mimbari enter the station, and we learn that although Mimbari have bone rather than hair on their heads, they can have facial hair, because this guy's got a beard. So that's an interesting little tidbit. Anyway, there's tremors on the planet that Babylon 5 orbits, Epsilon 3. All previous scans and surveys indicated that this was a dead, uninhabited world. But there are power signatures coming from the planet. This is a big mystery. So we get this negotiation scene. Londo talks about the Narn's hatred for his people. Uh, There's some great dialogue here. In a lot of ways, Babylon 5 is quite literary. I'd like to think that this show will be remembered as a great piece of late 20th century literature, except with cool spaceships and explosions. <laughs> so, the ghostly figure of an alien has been appearing to people on the station asking for help. And we meet Drahl for the first time. This is the Mimbari with the beard. It seems every episode lately we're meeting an important character for the first time. That's season one for you. Drahl is Delenn's old teacher. They clearly have a very close relationship, it's quite touching. And here we learn the concept of the sea. When Mimbari is getting old and they feel they've accomplished all they can at home, they set off into the Sea of Stars, leaving home behind forever to spend their last days in search of a cause, a way to serve and make the end of their life meaningful. I suspect in ancient times they literally sailed out into the oceans, but in modern times the sea has come to mean unexplored space. Drahl talks about changes happening back home on Mimbar. There's a growing rift between the religious and warrior castes. He feels that his time has come, and this breaks Delenn's heart, because when he leaves by B5, uh, she will never see him again. Meanwhile, we see a new news report that open revolt has broken out on Mars. There's fighting and bombing. The Free Mars Movement are demanding independence from Earth or the sand will run red with Earther blood. Sinclair was born on Mars, but he no longer has any family there. Garibaldi t- seems to be taking this pretty hard, and we learn why. In so doing, we hear about Lise Hampton, uh, the woman Garibaldi loved. After getting fired for his last four jobs, uh, he was offered the post on Babylon 5. Lise refused to go with him. They had harsh words and haven't spoken since. Now, Garibaldi is terrified she'll be hurt or killed in the fighting. Psycor have a secret training base on Mars. Maybe Talia can help him get through the closed comm lines. As scientists try and land on the planet, 
a missile begins to fire at them, and this is where we learn the Babylon 5 mantra. Ivanova is always right. I will listen to Ivanova. I will not ignore Ivanova's recommendations. Ivanova is God. And if this ever happens again, Ivanova will personally rink your lungs out. And then, of course, she looks up and says, just kidding about that God part. No offense. <laughs> so we have a nice moment where Londo and Garibaldi are talking. And there's just a real fun friendship developing between those two. Delenn brings Drahl to meet Londo, and we get an amusing scene where Londo explains how he's been trying to understand humans by studying the lyrics of the Hokey Pokey, and he's been studying it for seven days. He's almost hysterical when he says, It doesn't mean anything! So Sinclair and Ivanova go exploring an ancient cavern on the planet, which is opened up from the Tremors. And that's where the missiles are coming from. Now we're getting some exploration action. Now my Star Trek buttons are being pushed. So after a little Indiana Jones sequence, we reach the heart of what looks like an alien city deep underground, and there's a real sense of wonder happening here. The TV CGI visual effects don't fully convey the sense of wonder, although they are cool, but we feel that sense of wonder through the characters as Sinclair gushes to Garibaldi over the comm about how amazing the sights are. And I think this is a good use of character to con convey information here. Then we find that the alien who was appearing on the station, um, he's actually real and he's down here. He's stuck in a big machine. Uh, we'll come to know this later as the Great Machine. He looks like he's dying, so they try and pull him out. And the episode ends as a jump gate opens in what feels to me like a very forced, unnatural cliffhanger. Um, but this script was written like a movie, so it's really not meant to be broken. It flows much better on One Piece. Now, maybe I'm a bit biased here because, historically, I've always seen this as a two-parter. I, I, was, I was wondering, I wonder where they're going to break it. I wonder where that actual midpoint is. And, yeah, I don't know. It just felt to me like this is, this is not where you stop an episode. This, this is halfway through a movie. <laughs> anyway, this was a great episode. Not a minute is wasted. And I will look forward to delving into part two with you next week. See you then.